Hi, Tom. Hi, Steve. You guys are so funny. Have a great show. It's totally wicked. I'm Tom with them. I'm Steve Piles. And we today... Have, well, I was just going to say, we have two in a row. Holy... Yes, sh- I know. We're back. How did we with, manage this? With that, all it takes is a little plague, and we're off back on our feet. That's, yeah, we're back for the plague. Yeah. And uh, the beer. So, um, today, we're talking about sound design in film. Yes, and that little cracking of the can you heard was not a cracking of the can. I did that entirely with my mouth which is weird because it was on my side of <laughs> I'm not that good i am that telekinesis i am a radio ventriloquist it's a lost art form did you hear that no okay well never mind then <laughs> i mean i didn't make any noise that time that's what i didn't hear mm. yes i see so uh let's start off with a couple of definitions or at least how we're going to be separating that well right. actually first of all is there anything else you want to talk about before we get right into it uh oh i came up with a you know what i've been watching community again like okay I, and i started the second season i finished the first season and i have to say it was everything i remembered and more that show was hilarious it is now what i consider i would say the Third greatest sitcom ever. Really? Behind yeah. Arrested Development and Seinfeld? Exactly. Arrested Development. Exactly right. Ex- yeah, Arrested I know. Development. I know. Seinfeld community. That's the that's the order. Well, I have recently finished Parks and Recreation. Matter of fact, yeah. I finished finished that today, and I found that when you binge watch a television show, you don't have the same emotional. I don't know. Yeah. <sighs> It's one of those things that when you're spending like five years watching on a week to week basis and you're waiting, you know, long hiatuses for the summer to be over and and, uh, you get way more attached to the characters and there's a little bit more of an emotional value because no, I was going to say that's I never thought about that way, but you're right that string it, especially when that goes for a long, long time, stringing it out that many years. Yeah, that's wow. That's profound. Well, when Friends ended, it was yeah. like incredibly emotional in the office when that ended. And I I want to say that they did their best in Parks and Rec, um, but they did not anticipate people watching back-to-back episodes, back-to-back-to-back-to-back. You know, like right. when you watch five episodes in a row, you know, you start losing that. Uh, uh, that's funny. That's the same joke they've been, you know, running gags, I guess, can be funny. But when they start overusing the same joke or something like that, it becomes glaringly obvious if you're binge watching and the same goes, I feel for like emotional attachments because the, the final season for one wasn't, they didn't do a really great job. They actually, the finale of the season, the season six season finale absolutely could have been the series finale. As far as I'm concerned, they came back for an abbreviated seventh season. It was about 13 episodes as opposed to the, traditional 22 24 episodes mm-hmm. and uh, they kind of just you could tell they were just wrapping things up they did a lot of this is what the characters do in the future oh, matter yeah, of fact yeah. 
the final episode is an hour long and it's almost entirely constructed of what everybody's doing in the future. Hmm. But it's, it's a very emotional episode. Like, I mean, not to sound sappy or anything like that, but I, I did not like feel anything when I, matter of fact, I was kind of just like, thank God this is getting over. (laughs) (laughs) I can move on to something else. Yeah. Yep. Because, um, you know, it's just, I'm not attached to these characters. I've only spent the last couple of weeks with them. I'd be interested to see it. Yeah, exactly. You're like, this is not even a month of my life. Like, I'd be interested to see if anybody watches some of these beloved shows for the first time on Netflix and binge watches them and gets anywhere near. Like, I, I, would, I would venture to say that, no, like, there's nobody out there that never saw Friends, sat down, watched the whole series in, you know, a month. And went, oh my god, I can't believe it's over. This is amazing. This, I can't, right. you know, this was a like no. Whereas, like me, and probably to some extent you, but you like, I know your wife loved that show, grew up with that, like was in our formative years, yeah, our mid-teens to our mid-twenties. That show was just on. That show was the thing. That was every week. You you built up a year to wait for the finale, and then you had to wait all summer to wait for it to start again to see what was going to happen. And yeah, that was an investment that you're never going to have with the binge watching. That's a good way to look at it. Right. And and it's not like you can't have it now. I mean, they're constantly coming up with new shows and I mean, it, we're watching them in different ways. Um, and it's to some extent, I don't feel that with the game of Thrones or Westworld. Cause there's only like 10 episodes per season and they make you wait so long in between yeah. seasons. So it, it, it's, it's hard for me to get super emotionally invested in those. Ty- I mean, I love those. I love, you know, I, I still think that they're doing it right. The Mandalorian's doing it right. I'm not a huge fan of the blast, you know, like right. Stranger Things. Like Stranger Things, you get it all at once. Yeah. Um, I would, you know, I I like the whole water cooler aspect. I know we've talked about it before, so I won't go on too much about it. But I love that from week to week you can talk to somebody about it and maybe come up with your own ideas. And the Internet has kind of ruined that a little bit with... You know, <laughs> yeah. looking up theories and like you got yourself in isolation, yeah, yeah, or at least you know, like I enjoy talking to you about television. I do like going online and watching YouTube videos of shows and stuff like that. Like, ooh, what's going to happen next week? And but I think that you can do that too much, and it could, it could <laughs> be spoil. unhealthy. Yeah. Oh, I'm not, that's why. That's what you mean. I thought you meant you could become obsessed and like a TV nerd and then spend all your time watching. Not that that's ever happened to anybody, you know, like me or anything. I don't. Actually, (laughs) (laughs) Um, there is one thing I'll say about the binge watching, like the uh, Stranger Things, is it's it's like ice cream where you feel momentarily satisfied and sated because once you reach that cliffhanger moment at the end of an episode, you're like, holy shit. All right. Yes, I will watch that episode. And you just (laughs) immediate satisfaction. There's yeah, that's kind of nice. And it's also, like I said, like ice cream. It's not going to stick with you or do you much good in the long run, but it's a indulgence at the time. Another thing that I kind of found out about sitcoms that it, I don't, there should be a word for it. I don't know what it is. Uh, it irritates me a little bit. Um, That's a word. Okay. So it's a mild irritation, ah. but there should be like the Buddy Limbeck type. Thing. Aha, yes. Buddy Limbeck. So uh, said it right. No, the Joey thing. No, God. <laughs> But he looked like predates Joey, goddamn. Um, no, it's the so you're watching a sitcom. Let's just say Parks and Rec, and maybe you're in the third season, and they show you an episode. And in this episode, uh, or l- let me just say maybe 
anybody that's not familiar with Parks and Rec, uh, the main character, like in the third or fourth season, all of a sudden she's like a scout leader that you've never heard of before. She hasn't mentioned in any of the previous episodes and any of the previous seasons. And she says, oh, every year I take, I'm a scout leader and I take my kids to this camp. And like it happens for that episode and that episode only. Hmm. You're supposed to automatically assume that this is something that you, it's just acceptable that you know this. And then something happens and then you move on. Another example is um, on Parks and Rec is the men every year go on a hunting expedition. Like in the second season, it's not mentioned. It's like a special thing that the men do on a certain day of the year. It's never referenced. It's never talked about other than in that one episode. And then they move on. And I'm trying to think of an example. I can't right off the top of my head. There must be an example of television shows other than Arrested Development. Because Arrested Development is the king (laughs) of... The long setup. The long setup. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's the thing is there's no long setup for these things. And I don't know what to call them. I, it, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, I would say like a fabricated, um, a fabricated moment, just yeah. to an episode. And it's like, uh, like a fabricated history, I guess you'd say. Yeah. yeah. Every year at Thanksgiving, we go to this one restaurant and then the next Thanksgiving, they're not at that restaurant. Yeah, and none of the fourth, previous thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it's, but it's like exclusive to that episode. So, yeah. Instead of putting the time, like, I, you can get it, like a writer, oh, this would be a funny joke for this episode, puts it in, calls it good. But at the same time, you're like, man, you didn't put the time in. You didn't build it up over years. Right. Like, I can see there being, you know, something in season one about, oh, the scout troop that you do. And then that's a throwaway comment. It might be added to a joke. And then, like, three seasons from that, you know, and, and it's, I think Parks and Rec did that. The Office did it a lot, but... Every year we do. Oh, you know what the office did was the uh, the award the Dun- show. The Dundies. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's something that they did do. Like, yeah. So they did do that right, but like uh, I want to say that a majority of the Parks and Rec episodes start with this year we're having this festival or this year we're having this park is doing this. We've never talked about it before. We're not going <laughs> to talk about it after this. But right. this episode, you're going to laugh your butts off because we're showing you that this thing that we do every year goes wrong. And it's a missed opportunity, right? Like you could do it. Okay, like I'll use a community example. There's two things that come to mind. And the one is a small thing. Um, in seasons one, two, and three, in one episode each, a character says the word Beetlejuice. And in season three, as soon as the character says the word Beetlejuice, you see somebody dressed like Beetlejuice walk in the background. <laughs> that, that's a good setup. It was, it was a three-year setup and for almost no payoff because I absolutely don't remember that the first time I watched it. Like, I didn't pay enough attention to be like, oh, that's the third time somebody said Beetlejuice, who's, oh, there he is, you know, but I saw it as one of those internet things. It's like, it's basically an inside joke that was three years in the making, and they fucking stuck to it. Yeah, good for them. But there's also a theme, I think they did it every season, where one episode towards the end is a paintball episode, where the entire school loses their mind and starts going at each other with paintball guns. Like, it's like a real thing. Like, the first one was... This character wakes up and it's almost like a post-apocalyptic world because there's like trash everywhere and paint everywhere instead of blood. Yeah. And he's like, where is everybody? And he finds like survivors. Like, man, it's chaos out there. It's it's <laughs> out of control. Everybody's lost their minds. And Because there was like this big prize everybody wanted to get. And then it was such a good episode. I mean, seriously, it was such a good – it was like it played into all the, like the action movie tropes and do we turn on each other? You know, at the end, the main guy is like basically John McClane from Die Hard. And 
He's like, why did you do this? Oh, and he's like hiding the gun, strapped to his back and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's a brilliant episode. And it was so good that they just kept doing it every season. Another paintball episode. They found another theme, an Old West one. And, you know, like a like a showdown type of thing. And they Absolutely. just Absolutely, yeah. Kept that's, running with it. That's them doing it right. And that's, yes, exactly. That's it. That's the setup. That's, we're going to have the patience and the foresight to plan this out and do this right. Right. Um, Which Arrested Development was the king of. Now I, okay, so I've finished Parks and Rec. I'm in the outpost, still quarantining myself in the outpost, which will probably last, you know, another couple of weeks probably. Mm. And uh, I, I need to start another show to binge watch. Community is, <laughs> I mean, you, it would take very little convincing if you wanted to tell me. that. I tell you, it, oh, I bet telling um, you, come on. Also, The Expanse is one of them. The Expanse is good, too. Um, it, I guess it depends on what you're in the mood for, because The Expanse is not <laughs> a comedy, but... Uh, it is well, really it good. Yeah, it doesn't have to be. You can binge on comedy. The Expanse is really good. I'll say this. it's It was deeply disappointing to me. Huh? Uh, segue. It was deeply disappointing to me in one respect because it started off the first couple episodes without the computer sound effects. So the beep, 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 beep. Oh, and then you they know? incorporated it. And then they like lost their nerve and put it in there. Mm-hmm. But at first I was like, oh my God, it's happened. <laughs> they've actually had computers that act like computers it's amazing yeah and then there were a whole bunch of confused people watching going are they actually using that computer what? i don't know what's going on man why the computers don't work but they're working <laughs> I, I'm a, my bond is blown well we're gonna come back to that i'm actually remember this moment because okay. while we're talking about sound in film we will absolutely talk about that <laughs> okay. uh anyway so before we do get started on sound editing, I wanted to have a shout out to our California listeners. Apparently, coming back from a long hiatus, did something in California. Now all of a sudden we got a whole ton of oh. California listeners. Nice. They want to know how the other coast is surviving. Are we still around? Maybe. Maybe it's... Yes, we are. And uh, on top of that, uh, if you're listening and you're a fan, and I don't know who you are, uh, I appreciate... Um, and I'm flattered by people that want to add me on Skype. But if you're a stranger, <laughs> I can't add you on Skype. That's just not something that I can that do. That was unexpected. <laughs> well, it's a different format. And uh, I think by using my real name probably <laughs> makes me a little bit easy to find. What? How do you even see that? I don't, I don't think. Wait a minute. That means none of you fuckers want to add me <laughs> on <laughs> Well, I'd like to thank my fans. Oh, my God. You all suck. I don't want to thank anybody. You can all eat a dick. <laughs> Any of those uh, weird psychopaths from California that want to add Steve. <laughs> Man, just give me outro in your cult. It's fine. I'm into that shit. I, I was just at a cult yesterday. Maybe maybe they just, uh, you know, maybe they Look, what's want the pants? to add. Tell me the pants requirement for your cult. Pro pants or anti-pants? That's all I uh, want to know about. Anti-pants. Pro Nike shoes, though. I'm in. And, and purple shrouds. Can I wear like a purple speedo? No, nude. Nude, nude. Just from the waist down, because I don't. My nipples well, yeah. aren't very attractive. I don't really want to show people that. <laughs> well, the purple shroud will cover that. Yeah. Okay. That's that's. And that here, works. have a spoonful of pudding. <laughs> Wait, I promise what? you. That. Heaven's Gate, man. The Heaven's Gate cult. That ain't no pudding. <clears throat> yeah, that's how they killed themselves. They. Oh, uh, was it? No. Yeah, they Kool Aid was done. They didn't want to be. Yeah, that was. I mean, that'd be lame. That's right. Well, they're the on lizard. a com- They're on a comet now, so they're they're 
Just like they well, had to laugh they're, last. They're technically in the, the tail of a comet. Just like the gremlins from Maximum Overdrive. Oh, yeah. That is that, such a good movie. That's going to come up later. Too. Remember this moment. <laughs> gremlins <laughs> or Maximum Overdrive? Maximum Overdrive. This is all coming together. I was going to talk about Maximum Overdrive. Yeah. Well, great. No, I was going to. Okay. I fine. was going to talk about Maximum fine. Overdrive that's before fine. you. That's fine. You, that's, you could have to. I, I'll let you. That's you whatever it's fine no you no Go. i took you didn't let me do anything <laughs> no no who said it first well to all my fans in california i know you'll back <laughs> me up on this <laughs> you and your cult i just you know what i don't need people i don't need anybody um already california with your <coughs> wildly crazy northern and southern halves that are nothing like each other and i don't know what i'm talking about okay okay are you are we good <laughs> probably not all right uh, so let's talk about sound design in film. Ooh, design. Sounds fancy. Yes. It's a, it's actually a really big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll start at the beginning. Late 1800s, mm-hmm. early 1900s, they had silent films. Here that is, is right. an interesting piece of trivia. <clears throat> they didn't call them silent films back then. They just called them films. <laughs> it wasn't until they started putting sound to films that they called the other ones silent films. <laughs> well, the new ones were talkies. Like, oh right. my god. So, uh, for anybody who's interested in that type of thing, that's me. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the day, they used to hire performers to play usually a piano. It could have been um, more than that, but it was usually a piano. Do you know the number one reason that they played piano during movies? Or these uh, silent films so people wouldn't they would know how to feel like if it uh, like if they picked up pace they knew they had to be anxious or if it was like lighthearted and weird it was a funny scene no damn i thought i was <laughs> out of something uh no there was um there was an aspect of it to engage with the audience but the first the number one reason was to cover the sound of the projector ah okay apparently it sounded like a very loud sewing machine and it was very off-putting. So somebody had the idea to have a piano come in and play during the film to cover the sound of the projector. And then they decided, hey, we can incorporate this into the film. So <laughs> very early on, um, there were these cue sheets that would, you know, like this guy fall, you know, slips on a banana peel, play this type of music. Somebody's crying, play, play this type of music. And so there were these cue sheets Um and that was the, the main way for them to engage with the audience. And then um, it wasn't until 1915, my notes there, the, uh, the first score compiled specifically for a film. And this has been brought up in the podcast before. Do you know the first film that scored specifically? The music that was playing, like the, the, uh, the orchestra, the... Ah. You said we've talked about this before, huh? It was one of your trivia questions. Damn it! <laughs> it I was, was afraid ex- you're going to say that. It was extremely racist. Oh, is this um, Birth of a Nation? Yep, Birth of ah, a Nation, 1915, uh, the first score compiled specifically for a film. Um, what a shitty film to have all these like <laughs> dubious <laughs> honors. First <laughs> well, one played I mean, the White House. First one. But just just think of the time. You know what I mean? Like yeah. You know, uh, whatever uh 1927 the jazz singer first time to uh had a film had sound attached to it. i'd hope so it was 19- otherwise <laughs> well okay so let's let's look at it this way 
how important music is, how important a score is to a film. Oh, yeah. Well, the point I want to make here is it might be overlooked, the importance of the music. They had an opportunity to play a, a film for people to watch, and then they had the opportunity to bring something in to make a sound. Mm-hmm. So they took that opportunity not to bring in, you know, uh, an actor or an actress to speak the film. It wasn't the actual speech. It was the music that, that, that came first. Right. And to be fair, it was because they brought in piano players to cut, to mask the sound of the projector. So it was already in place. But <clears throat> if I'm trying to put myself in the mind of, the local Nickelodeon operator and I'm playing a film and I want my audience to engage. Why don't I just find an actor and an actress, bring them in and have them off screen somewhere actually recite the script. So now my audience can watch the film and they can hear it. They can hear the actual dialogue. That Is that what they did? No, I'm just saying that music when, when we think of sound in film, music came before dialogue. Yeah, okay, okay. Music was more important than dialogue. Right. And if you ask me, that, I mean, that's just a little bit strange. It sounds, like, natural, but it's strange, the fact that they played music first. Music came first in film, before I, dialogue. I, that makes sense to me. I mean, like, I get what you said, the cover of the projector thing, but just, not to derail what you're saying, but just the, like, uh, a trailer for a shitty movie with the right music can make all the difference. It could make me want to see that movie if it has the right music. And you can have the best, most expl- explanationary, that's not a word, explanatory, <laughs> uh, explanatory voiceover that tells you everything about the movie. But if you have the right music and no dialogue whatsoever, I'm more apt to see that. So I can see why they would stick with music, even if it was by accident that they stumbled on the power of the draw of music. Like, well, there's, that, that does make sense to me. There were, we'll get to this, and this is what I wanted, the callback that I was going to tell you uh, in the 40s. Uh, I'll just tell, I, we'll talk about it now. It, okay. Because we'll fast forward, 1933, um, first sound, the first score written specifically for a film um, was King Kong. Ah. And so, okay, so we'll skip, we won't skip, we'll just go right into it. In the 1940s, the overall thought process about music in film was that it was for the stupid people (laughs) it like legitimately maybe even clinically how they wrote it down was for the uneducated people in the auditorium or the audience that are watching it we need music to teach them to show them whether they should be happy or sad or whether they should be excited or thrilled it was for the dumb people who okay. didn't understand dialogue. Okay, that was my original guess of why. <laughs> That's exactly what I said when you asked me why they would have put music like, well, to tell the audience how to feel. That yeah. doesn't That's... make me feel great. But like that was in the 40s, that was the thought process of music in film was we got a bunch of dopes out there that yeah. don't know you know, their ass from their elbow and we have to guide them through this film with music and the music, uh, is going to determine what they're seeing on the, you know, because you might have somebody delivering dialogue that in context, you know, might seem one way, but the music is going to lead you down a different path. Right. right. And that was for the uneducated. 
<laughs> yes, the according great, to them, I'm not, I don't think so. Unwise. No, whatever. <laughs> no, I think that there's way more of a. Um, I, I just think that there's more feeling involved, and it's not necessarily uneducated versus. And we'll get into that. I'll I'll talk about that a little bit as well. But um, 1952 was the birth of the movie tie-in, and this changed a lot. Um, actually, with the movie High Noon, uh, it's a western, and uh, there was a song written for the film, not necessarily a score, like the score, but there was a, a song, hmm. a folk song. And um, it was it was written by Dmitry Tiomkin. He actually <laughs> won an Oscar for it. And um, all those good Western songs written by guys named Dmitry. <laughs> <laughs> well, what ended up happening was varieties of the song were played throughout the film during different times. And test audiences, and yes, they had test audiences that far back, test audiences did not like it. So they removed the song. And then the movie went into post-production, and for one reason or another, budgetary and whatnot, um, acquiring distribution rights and things like that, post-production was incredibly long for that movie. And in the meantime, Dimitri said, I really think this song belongs on the radio. Or at least people representing Dimitri were like, this song belongs on the radio. Right. So he sold the rights or however it worked back then. And it ended up on the radio uh, and they made you know records of it. And it like went into the stratosphere as far as popularity goes. So then the studio was like, well, that's some bullshit because we own that. <laughs> so we're going to make our own version. We're going to distribute it under a different label. And they both, both versions of the songs were like in the top 10. Wow. Like they, it was that, I mean, it, 1952 it's it's a western you know it's i it's a folk song so imagine the audience but still commercialization of a movie or a a song tied to a movie hit the charts and went straight to the top two versions of it so um well so do you know did it lead to when the movie came out all of a sudden crazy high ticket sales like it was like the best advertising in the world or was it well it what ended up happening was the studio made money off the song. Then people rushed to the movie to see it, and then they con- it maintained its popularity. The song maintained its popularity. And the studio continued to make money over on top of money on top of money because of this song that was involved with this movie. And yeah. studios, like the light bulb went off for studios, like, <laughs> there's money just waiting to be printed here. Yeah. So they started. People like music. This is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it kind of merged the two. And before that, there were there were songs like um, Wizard of Oz. You know, the song, the music from these films uh, were good, but they never they didn't capitalize on it. It's the best way to put it. They, you know, it wasn't it wasn't really super popular to tie a, a song to a movie. And right. as you'll see. When we get to the 80s, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. tying a, a song to a movie was yeah. like cha-ching. That, but, you did, yeah, yeah, well, that just came ahead, but yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll get there. <clears throat> so then in uh, 1967, The Graduate came, and The Graduate used a score and a soundtrack. And, and, and let's take this opportunity to split the two. So there's a movie soundtrack and there's a movie score. Right, right. And there's sound effects. And those all fall under the sound design. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, 
we have, uh, so the score is typically an orchestrated movement that will direct you where your motion should go in the film. I, I guess it's a very leading. So the score would be like what John Williams would do in Star Wars or something. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. Okay. And we'll talk about John Williams probably ad nauseum, but, uh, <laughs> but just uh, let me, I mean, you know what I'm talking about when, when I say the movie Jaws, like sure. the music, the, the score that you're listening to, you hear that before you actually see the danger. Mm-hmm. So that music, the, the score is dictating how you feel emotionally with what you're seeing. And like, as we'll see, as we get into this a little bit more, I mean, that has incredible, an, an incredible impact on how you feel about that movie. But yeah. Yeah, so, I was just thinking of uh, Halloween. Holy crap! Because yeah. like the the score for Halloween is iconic. Like, and it just leads you like there's some of the stuff that's a slow build. Then that Halloween main theme plays, and you're like, oh shit, it's coming down. You know, okay, yeah. Um, funny thing about the Halloween score, and I'm I'm quickly going online just to verify my facts because I remember reading this, but I don't remember if it was from Halloween. I want to say John Carpenter did the score himself. Yeah, I think I was just going to say, I think I heard that. And I think he kind of just like threw it together. <laughs> like it's <laughs> well, when you're a genius funny. and you That's throw right. things together, it's still genius. Yeah. And I think that you, uh, yep. It was composed by John Carpenter. Um, and from what I remember, he kind of just was like, eh, this is what I want. And he threw it together, slapdashed it together. And it was like, boom, there you go. And it turned out the Halloween scores like this ominous, like if you yeah. hear that music, somebody's there to kill you. That's Which, there's somebody hiding behind the shower curtain for sure. Yep, I maintain that you have the Halloween main theme and probably that right, right, right from Psycho, and then the dude from Jaws. Those are the three horror movie scores that will never not be in the pop culture. In the uh... well, it's funny that you mentioned Psycho. That the shower scene with that, um, there was a, a incredible essay. If you can call an essay incredible, yeah, I'd say 2010 about uh, that that scene in particular and what it does in film, and it's basically uh, not. It's, they call it non-linear alarm sound. Okay. So the violin playing that. Right. If you watch that film with that scene with that music. And then you watch it again with no music at all. You just hear the sound effects of like the, the woman in the shower, the knife hitting flesh, and then it completely different. It is it is mm-hmm. like night and day. Now obviously you're watching somebody be murdered, but it's also Psycho, and it was also an older film where they didn't show much graphic. Like when you see the the shower curtain being pulled back, and then the shadow of Norman Bates, and then the knife. It's a shadow with a knife, and then uh, you see. The stabbing motion. What? Spoiler alert. If you don't know what you're watching the end, it's Norman Bates' mom. Come on. Jeez. <laughs> okay. Spoiler alert. <laughs> when you see the shadow with the knife make yeah, the stabbing motion, you don't actually see like this graphic like stabbing in the skin and, and her, you know, it's right. implied. It's very much implied that he's stabbing her to death and you see her it's- fall down. It's very stiff. Like I literally watched that scene again today for a specific reason, and uh, oh, because you wanted up. to see a butthole. 
No, that's what that's what the remake version. <laughs> Anne Hache's butthole. Anne Hache's butthole. That's right. <laughs> there's, a, there's a song about it. Anyway, okay. All right. So we're. T- I'm anyway. skipping. I'm skipping way ahead. Unless you, we we can get there. We'll get back to Psycho. How about that? Sure. In just a oh, minute. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, yeah, we're off track. Look at this. Go ahead. That, I'm in 1967. The Graduate. Okay. That soundtrack, not so, the score. Okay. Go ahead. I'll just say it was Simon Garfunkel. Hello, Darkness. Was that original for this movie, yes. or is that there? okay? I never knew yeah. that. Yeah, it's um, Mrs. Robinson. <clears throat> um, oh, yeah. Uh, Sound of Silence. Um, our, those those guys, um, Simon and Garfunkel, were not unknowns, but from what I what I read, like their good work was on that movie. Like their most memorable work came from you know that uh, the Graduate, and that's the soundtrack. The film, The Graduate, also has a score. And nobody knows it. I mean, there's no, <laughs> and it's like not on purpose, not because the guy was bad or anything. It's just that it was overshadowed by the soundtrack. And then uh, um, the film in 1969, Easy Rider, is a huge film that they used um, a soundtrack of when they were filming. They didn't intentionally say, "Oh, we're going to have Born to Be, you know, we're not, we're going to have these songs play." It was they made the movie and put that music over it as they're making it in order to create the film that they wanted to make. And then they're, they're, they did not intend on leaving that music there. They were going to replace the music, but they ended up liking it so much they licensed all the music in order to put it in the film. The film cost $350,000 to make. It cost over a million dollars to license the music. Oh, so shit. The, the music license costs like three times the budget of the film. <laughs> but th- but that was worth it to them because it's this iconic, like it's considered the film that ushered in quote unquote new Hollywood. Yeah. Huh. <clears throat> so we're in 1969. Um, so we can we can talk more about Psycho. There was something else you wanted to bring up about Psycho. You would watch the scene today in order to. Not well. The thing I was going to talk about was sound effects. So the thing about Psycho was sound effects. So we'll get to. I was going to get to that later. Oh. Okay. That's, I'm just. That's why I watched it because I was looking at. The different sound effects stuff. Right. And the the bringing in of music that was popularized, like that you heard on the radio, like um, for uh, Easy Rider, what they felt after the fact was that when you heard popular music, because let's face it, not everybody listens to the songs that are on a lot of these. Oh, like, yeah. We might call them popular, and you may think just because you've heard it, you're thinking like everybody's heard <laughs> it kind of thing. But oh yeah, it's the really it, it was connecting the audience a little bit more. So somebody that was a fan of the song might then become a fan of the movie, and vice versa. So you're you've got these these genres that are like weaving its way through. Like so, I'm sitting there and I'm I'm watching this movie, and I may never have heard this song, but bam, now I've heard this song, I'm going to seek out more music like it. So mm-hmm. really they were bringing a lot of audiences together, connecting a lot of audience. Um, and in the 70s, there was a giant split in movies, films that had a score and films that had a soundtrack. And the n- number one soundtrack, it's not the number one, number one soundtrack of all time anymore, but up until, and no, I, I don't want to say recently because it wasn't recently, but up until a certain point, um, Saturday Night Fever. Yep. Was yeah. I was gonna say that's gotta be way up there. Yep. It went platinum sixteen times. Now, did that make the Bee Gees stars, or were the Bee Gees already kind of known before that? Bee Gees were already known. All right. The um, the 
handing the reins to the Gibbs, the Gibb brothers, mm-hmm. to to do the soundtrack to that movie was a stroke of genius. It yeah. was essentially the music from that movie made the movie. I mean, Saturday Night Fever, I don't know if you've seen it. I don't know the last time you saw it. It's actually a pretty good film. but it's I've so- actually never seen it. It's, but it says something that the sequel was named "Staying Alive." I mean, <laughs> right there. <laughs> well, that was up. a cash grab. Yeah, that was a, a big time cash yep. grab because I'm pretty sure that was a huge flop. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I think that it was a big big bl- uh, flop at the time. But anyway, uh, the number one it was 79 and 80. The number one and number two albums in the country were Saturday Night Fever. And Greece. And Greece. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Travolta was riding high. <laughs> yeah, he was. But those were two soundtracks. They yep. were not scored films. You can go. You can rewind a few years and go back to Superman. I mean, not uh, Star yeah. Wars. But and this well, is a, Superman. I mean, yeah. Right. Uh, Jaws, Star Wars, John Williams. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing about those movies, or at least Star Wars. And there's kind of there was early on a campaign to smear John Williams because he stole a lot of, a lot of what, you know, the star Wars theme, um, is actually a total and complete ripoff. Oh, really? Does that, uh, come, what a bummer. <laughs> does that come as a shock to you? Yeah. I never heard of that. Uh, yeah. So there's this movie called King's row that the hmm. star Wars theme that, you know, bah, 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 bah. yeah, total and complete ripoff from this movie. You know what? You know what else is a ripoff? The star spangled banner. The music for the Star Spangled Banner, because what's his name? Francis Scott Key wrote a poem that was later, did somebody put music to it? The music is from an old Irish drinking song, I guess, or Scottish, one of those two. That somebody likes, like, let's put it a national anthem and use one of these old Irish drinking songs. So, you know what? Fuck it. Whatever. If the, if the Star Spangled Banner could about, do it, John you Williams talk could rip-offs? do it. Let's talk Twinkle Twinkle Little Star in the ABC <laughs> song, okay? Let's talk uh, about real rip-offs. I don't know what you're talking about, but I do know Baba Black. Was that something? <laughs> no, um, actually, amongst um, the people in the business, this is an actual term that they talk about themselves. Rampant unoriginality. Ooh. They they know it. Mm. And, and I don't want to keep saying we'll get to it. We will absolutely get to it. But Star Wars was... Uh, kind of a, a love affair of westerns and samurai films and, and World War II. Yep, World War II films. So a lot of the a lot of the music for Star Wars is an absolute ripoff from those movies, but it was done under the direction of George, uh, George Lucas. So John Williams was not like, oh, I hope nobody notices, but I'm going to go steal this music. It was absolutely George Lucas saying to John Williams. This is what I want. Make it happen. Oh, so John Williams like, I was under orders. I had no responsibility. When it comes to stuff like that, it is so prevalent that it's not like they're suing each other. And and again, we'll get into it um, because once we get into uh, one individual in particular that is one of my favorite composers. Danny Elfman. He's one of them. Oh, okay. But it's a different person that was in a an 80s pop band <laughs> that turned composer. Ah. <laughs> uh, there was a keyboard player from the Buggles. You know, you remember their video killed the radio star? I remember that song. I don't I guess I didn't really know much about the Buggles. Uh, I thought I thought it was Presidency United. Maybe they did a cover. Or Never mind. Because I have I have an MP3, Presidents of the United States, 
video killed the radio star. So I guess they probably just did a cover of it. Or yes, something. they covered it. Yeah. Okay. So the the keyboardist, I guess we can talk about it now. No, I don't want to talk about it now. I want guitarist. Probably played the guitar. Yeah. Um, but anyway, in the seventies, there was a definite split between soundtracks and scores because, well, I don't want to say because. Then we get into the eighties and we get into the serious movie music tie-in. We are living in the land of Kenny Loggins. Kenny Loggins was the absolute master of it. <laughs> but if I start naming movies, guaranteed you can start naming songs that go along with the movie. Mm-hmm. Or if I start naming the, the song. <laughs> okay, let's play a game. Let's okay. play a game. Real okay, quick. this is going to reveal the, my utter ignorance. but No, okay. it will not. No, it okay. will not. This is to prove a point. I'm going to name a few 80s songs. You tell me the movie it comes from. Okay? okay. All right. Footloose. <laughs> Ah, uh, damn! I'm gonna fail. Do I have to say it out loud? Okay. <laughs> Ghostbusters. Yeah, I see. I see the theme here. Hold on a second. Flashdance. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh so what's the was... Cindy Lauper song in Goonies? Is it just called Good Goonies, Enough? Or is it Goonies, Goonies are good enough for me. Goonies are good enough. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh so there was an absolute period where it made so much sense to create a song that went with the movie and it didn't have to be named after the movie it was just like that's just the way it was i mean like yeah. footloose ghostbusters and stuff like that well, I but, make it more difficult than it has to be right now okay so now that we've done that exercise i'm going to name a couple of songs and you're going to tell me the movie they come from okay okay danger zone uh top gun i the tiger rocky <laughs> see so yeah the iconic songs uh, how about uh, Power of Love? Huey Lewis in the News, Power of Love. Oh, uh, Back to the Future. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. okay, the point I'm trying to make is there were Nobody's songs. Fool. Nobody's Fool. Nobody's Fool, yep. What what movie? No, I know the movie. I want to see if you know the movie. Caddyshack 2. Yeah, okay, there we go. <laughs> you <laughs> thought I, I was going to say Caddyshack, didn't you? I, I kind of did for half a second. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely, when I was a kid, I thought that was my favorite song. I absolutely loved that song when I was a kid. I knew <laughs> that about you. Yeah, no. No, everybody does. Yeah, that's right. No, uh, I'll get people asking me, my Skype buddy. <laughs> so something something happened in the 80s that there was a huge explosion of songs and movies going hand in hand. And one of it, one of them, one of the reasons was the accessibility of music. You could walk into a music store, buy a tape cassette right, right. Or, or a CD later you, as we move along as we get later into the, like the late eighties and nineties, it was, you could buy a CD, but it's that portable. you could yeah, have it, music wherever you want. Right. Yeah. A Walkman with the right. tape cassette. You could be listening to footloose. You could, you could footloose dance in the <laughs> fucking mall. If you wanted to, you could dance down the street. Do that fucking worm. Yeah. So that became like a huge boost to the music movie tie in. Um, and, uh, it kind of died, died out with uh, digital music. I don't know if that was like, I don't know if that's the only reason, but it, it did, it did kind of die at the same time. Yeah, theme songs. I felt like that's been, a, I felt that like that for years. Like you don't get your Ghostbusters, your Footlooses, where songs are made blatantly for a movie. Like that just doesn't happen anymore. Right, and they do. They still do have a song tied to a movie. Just that right, song. but not just right 
Right, the song's not going to be called. You could you could divorce the song from the movie pretty easily if you wanted to. Absolutely. And yeah. the one example I saw, or a couple examples I saw with that, uh, um, like the Justin Timberlake song for Trolls. Sure. Uh, the Happy song from Despicable Me. You know, there's a lot of these movies, and a lot of them are kids' movies because that sells too. Like, there's something I'm not talking about at all is the Disney movies. But oh. the Disney oh, yeah. movies, like, there was a little bit of a die-out um, during their, their copper phase, um, the era of, like, the, the 70s and 80s. There was a lot bad going on with Disney. Have we talked, have we done an episode on Disney movies? No, I, I'm not even sure what you're talking about, the copper phase? So there's the golden maybe we, age. Well, maybe we should yeah, yeah, we'll, we make that topic. Yeah, we'll do an episode on Disney's. Trust me, can talk about them. It'll be it'll be interesting to experiment to find out can Tom do an entire episode with a boner? <laughs> well, is the Renaissance period the second Renaissance period? <laughs> Apparently, yes. Yeah. So anyway, um, all those movies in the second Renaissance had a song attached to the movie. That was that's just the way it is for Disney movies. Yeah. Um, but for um, other movies, non-animated movies, it kind of went away. And here's a little bit of trivia right here. Let me see if I, I wrote it down so I get it correct. This is this is about when it was dying down. I want to say that it was it was kind of killing itself. Um, the highest sell, uh, selling film soundtrack. Can you name the movie? Uh, highest. This is, a- this is wicked hard. This is this is I I do not expect you to get this. I will give. I will tell you right now that I my heart will go on by Celine Dion for Titanic is not the correct answer. Oh, although shit. although it should be. <laughs> I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Purple Rain just because. No, but okay. I <laughs> I'm very proud that you came up with that. That is one of those like well let's be real here. It's the movie called Purple Rain and there's a <laughs> song know, called right? Purple Rain. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I will I will give you a hint. Um, Whitney Houston. Oh, Bodyguard. Yep, Bodyguard. Yep. My heart will you know, go on. My uh, mom not, had no. uh, no. I will always love, I will love you. you. There was a bunch of that, like something in the night. I don't know. My mom had that. We actually, I heard that over and over again when I was like being driven to school when I was a kid. Yep. The and I'm not going to lie. It grew on me. It, 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 the whole soundtrack kind of grew on me. I'm not going to lie. Well, it's Whitney Houston. Yeah, it's good. It's good pop yeah. music. Solid pop music. But it was kind of after that, it started to die out. And I think that, you know, a little bit of it had to do with digitizing music and accessibility. <laughs> well, after Ghost, I heard the Righteous Brothers more than I ever thought I would in my life, but that's okay. Yep. <clears throat> um, so, just as an aside, if you do watch Community, there is an episode where Buster tries to kill somebody because they start say, reenacting the pottery clay thing <laughs> from Ghost. That's funny. Yeah. Um, so there's this thing called Temp Love. Where you love somebody for a very brief time. Uh, or... You inappropriately love somebody that works for you for a very brief time. No, it's actually, it's it goes back to that rampant unoriginality. Mm. And this is uh, something that's gone on for a very, very, very long time. Uh, and that is when a movie gets made. So they, they're making the movie. Uh, let, let's pick a pick an early 80s movie. Um, Red Dawn. Okay, Red Dawn. Good example. So they have to film the movie, then they have to, they probably haven't even hired the person to compose the music yet. Patrick Swayze. He should, mm-hmm. because there's actually one of my favorite soundtracks is Dirty Dancing. Yeah, that's the other one my mom had. <laughs> yeah. Uh, matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why I love it so much is because my mom loved it so much and we listened yeah. to it over and over. Oh, yeah. Anyway, 
Um, so Red Dawn, they're filming the movie with no music. Then they hire the composer. The composer comes in and has to write the music, sit in front of an orchestra, orchestrate this music while they're timing it to the film. Oh, wow, it, yeah. And then once they do that, the <clears throat> film is done. There's nothing left to do. They can't go back and reshoot. They can't go back and make edits. This movie <laughs> is done. So it became incredibly frustrating, especially with these giant tentpole movies, these huge blockbusters. Just think of just think of Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. The score, Alan Silvestri did the score to that movie, and he had to score that movie after it was done. And once it was done, that was it, game over. Yeah, unless they want to pay him to do it all over again. Right, because you don't just pay him. You also pay the in- entire orchestra to sit right. and do edits and stuff like that. So it, it was very frustrating. <clears throat> so there's this thing called temp music, and it stands for temporary music, but or temp love. So a composer, or I mean, I'm sorry, a director, just like George Lucas, he films the movie and he plays music from another movie. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm listening. I, yeah. For anybody listening <laughs> right now, I'm watching Steve on camera look desperately. I lost my coin. Oh, your coin's gone? It fell. I'll get it. Eh, I'll find it. I always find it. <laughs> Unless one of the fraggles took it. That bastard. The old guy did. Anyways. <laughs> anyway, uh, so take, for example, um, George Lucas. Yes. He probably used all the music from the films that he based Star Wars off, all the Westerns, all the samurai films and stuff like that, all the classical music, to temporary, like, I'm going to film it, and then I'm going to put the film together with this music. And then when John Williams came in, he said, hear this music, that's what I want, make it happen. Hmm. That is not uncommon. That's actually, that's how film was made. So... Uh, you take a movie like Die Hard or Red Dawn, for example. Mm-hmm. They probably did have some music. They had they they were using music from another movie to kind of fill in the gaps. So then they bring in the composer, and I don't I have no idea who composed Red Dawn soundtrack or uh, score. But um, that's very disappointing. <laughs> I count I count on you for these things. Well, you know what? Just because <laughs> I have the You're internet right up. here, and I am not going to leave the audience hanging. Who scored? Not scored. Scored Red Dawn. Google. Basile Poladaris. Oh, yes. I'm very familiar with. I'm, um, yeah. I, uh, we'll see what else. Basile, what else did he do? A lot of, a lot of TV. Uh, Vroom. He did Vroom. Um, The Blue Lagoon. Okay. Conan the Barbarian. Oh, oh, yeah. Conan the Destroyer. Hell yeah. Iron Eagle. God fucking damn. RoboCop. Holy shit. We just stumbled on some gold there, man. Uh, you want to know my... what else he scored? You want to know what else he scored there, Rob Patton? He scored Cherry 2000. Boom. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. So he scored The Hunt for Red October. How do I not know this guy? How, this guy, Barry Treasure. Holy shit. Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. Come Hell on. yeah. Hell yeah. Hot Shots Part Two. Oh, still, good movie. I love that movie. Under Siege 2. <laughs> Just a lot of sequels, huh? Starship Troopers. Oh, hell yeah. Robocop and Verhoeven loved him. Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. <laughs> uh, so I, I have to tell you right here and right now, I'm incredibly disappointed in myself that I did not know this guy. Now you he's, have a third favorite. 
Well, yeah, he's not on my radar, but I tell you what, he is now. And I'm going to, I got a lot of listening to do. <laughs> I have you now, Iron Eagle. <laughs> God, anyway, uh, so Temp Love is when a director fills in the gaps with another film's music, then hires a composer and says, I want exactly this. So the composer will then give them exactly that. Nice. And there are a few, I mean, it, it's not like there's just this endless cycle of movies redoing itself. I mean, it, you can absolutely find other movies. And you could go on YouTube right now. I guarantee you could go on YouTube and you could watch a hundred YouTube videos about movie music that rips off other music, movie music. And to the uninitiated, it would seem like, oh, this guy's just ripping him off. This guy's just ripping it off. No. This is the case of a director using another film's music because that's what they want. And it becomes very easy if it's from the same studio, you know, if they're, if they already own the rights, there's, um, I actually was just talking about this fairly recently with somebody about, um, the fact that Bishop's Bishop's escape, the countdown and everything from the movie aliens is pretty much the end of Die Hard. It's exact same. They use this exact yeah, same, you but talking, it's yeah. like, yeah, it's the same people involved. It's the same studio. It's the same, you know, like it's not that giant leap of, you know, Warner Brothers is using Universal's property. But, you know, it very well may be something like that. And um, so there's this composer that did uh, Mad Max Fury Road. He did the music for that. Junkie XL is his name. Fantastic. That, uh, Mad Max Fury Road is, is quickly climbing into my top five movies of all time. I oh, love yeah. that movie. And the music is just unbelievable. He does this really good explanation of these composers that will will take the shit from the director. And then mm-hmm. there's composers that, nope, I'm not going to use that. And like he's one of those guys that he, if he's going to get hired for a job, he wants to either hear his own music. So like he might be in talks with the director already and he might say, I'm not going to do it unless you've either done silence or used my music. Hmm. So you can tell like these guys that have a lot of films under their belt are usually the guys that are okay copying their own stuff or other people's stuff. There's a lot of really like, just think about John Williams scoring all the star Wars movies. He, you know, how, how long did it take him to do that? (laughs) They're all so similar. Yeah. Well, Uh, the duel of the fates one, when he came out with the prequels was, uh, I, I, yeah, it's, that's still similar, I guess. See, this is interesting to me because from what you've been saying, it seems to me like if you're going to be somebody that wants to make a career or at least a s- supplemental career out of scoring movies, you're just going to have to eat some shit. Like that's not where your area of creativity is going to be. But now you're saying that there's some guys that do have a cloud to be like, go fuck yourself. I'm going to, if you want me, you're going to, well, I'm going to do something amazing and you're going to have the, to work around it. The number one guy the the like big dog is Hans Zimmer. Yeah. And the reason why he's the big dog is uh he does he started it. I say he started it, but it was it was done before him. Don't I don't want to say that, but he popularized using a computer to do it. Hmm. It's it's him with a synthesizer, him with machinery playing all the notes himself versus John Williams who hires, you know, has an entire orchestra right? and 
he's writing the music and composing the music, but other people are playing the music. Whereas Hans Zimmer can rip out, you know, he can have his own themes in his head and he can put the, his own themes in the synthesizer and he can manipulate it his own damn self. And next thing you know, he's <laughs> shit out, a, you know, a, a score. And he gets to pocket the whole paycheck too. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I'm sure there are way more people involved than, than just the one guy. I mean, there's engineers and there's people responsible for equipment and stuff like that. But that's like, I guess he is the number one person to tap for temp music. Mm-hmm. And he kind of broke his own mold with a lot of the, a lot of, like there are a lot of very distinct movie scores. Um, the Gladiator, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what's uh, Interstellar, um, what's what's the one with the dream within a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream? Within uh, Inception. Inception. Did he yeah. do Crimson Tide too? Probably. I'm, I feel like, yeah. Probably he did. He's He's done like, He's done a lot, but yeah. one of the movies that he's done, Black Rain, was one of his movies um, that he did. I think that's the late '80s, and that is like the number one temp music that these directors mm. are using. Is that that same score from that one movie? It's kind of like the the whore that gets passed. <laughs> Everybody gets a ride. Anyway, um, that that's completely separate from movie soundtracks. I could I could talk equally as long about movie soundtracks but instead i'll just sum it up to say that there are some directors and there are some movies that are really mostly identifiable by the music that they choose not necessarily the score the score is you know you can ignore it and it is just there to kind of tell you when to be tense and tell you when to be happy but um no like for example with a score with star wars and with a lot of Disney movies, each character has their own theme. And when right. they're when that character's on screen, boom, there's their theme. You you can identify their theme, and there are different variations of their theme. Whether that character's happy, whether that character's sad, whether that character's in trouble, it's a theme for that particular person. And in um, like Pulp Fiction, for example, that doesn't really have a score. That has a soundtrack. That is right. That's popular. like all. Tarantino's movies. Yeah, I mean Tarantino uses the, and and gains inspiration from songs to write yep. specific scenes, and it's yeah you know, the same. Uh, there's a score and a soundtrack for Forrest Gump. Forrest mm-hmm. Gump leans heavily on the popular music, not necessarily the score, but um, just off the top of my head, thinking of uh, Judgment Night. Yep, that, that relied heavily on the the soundtrack, not necessarily the score. Um, the Big Chill, if anybody's inclined to watch that. There's there's a lot of movies that are almost entirely soundtrack and not... Well, like the modern example, the ones that... In fact, the whole movie not even just relies more on soundtrack than score, but the movie itself probably wouldn't have done nearly as well without the soundtrack is the two Guardians of the Galaxies movie. Yes. Like yeah, those, the soundtrack was a like... a really good example. It was like another freaking cast member, basically, like the soundtrack itself. Yeah. And that... It may seem like it, but that doesn't limit itself to one particular genre and era. No, like, yeah. Who would ever thought like a buddy space movie would also be scored with 70, 70s and 80s pop music hits? Like right. if you rewind the clock 15 years and said that to somebody, they'd be like, the hell are you talking about? It sounds like the wackiest thing in the world. Yeah. And it but worked. It, it, it did. It worked really, really well. Um, but just... I kind of, I, we're going to finish this podcast and there's going to be like a hundred <laughs> things that I wanted to talk about that I didn't yeah. get a chance to talk about. 
But just to just to nail it down before we move on to sound effects, while we're talking about scores, I want you to think about um, how you feel when you hear the music and coupled with the the movie uh, in um, the Avengers Endgame, the mm-hmm. the portals scene right. when Captain America is standing there. And he's getting ready to face down Thanos' army all by himself. And all of a sudden, the portal's open and out walks all these characters. Right. Like, that moment and the soundtrack or the the score that goes along with it, like, gives me goosebumps. Yeah, it's amazing. And just imagine that scene with silence. Yeah, you know It's what? impossible. It's it's basically, like, that would be, like, the this flat moment in the movie. Just like, oh, here, here are my pals. We're going to fight now. I, I would be, go beyond, I would say, even beyond saying it's impossible to imagine it, it would be utter, utterly ridiculous. Try watching that scene with just, like, I'm not even saying muted, like just like like they do in sitcoms when you take the soundtrack, the laugh yeah. track out. Do that when you hear people like moving around, you hear like armor clanging or footsteps <laughs> walking, but no sounds. Yeah. And just kept the going, <laughs> oh, wow. And just uh, zoom and <laughs> and then... Uh, slick slick ah, here we go yeah <laughs> and just it would be it would not be it's not just unthinkable it's, it would be ridiculous it would turn to a farce it right. would turn into like just this and anticlimactic it, just joke of a scene yeah but the score makes all the difference another example i have two more examples of that um one is there's a really popular scene in a movie that people have changed the score just to make it work differently mm. um the scene from uh star wars okay so when obi-wan and anakin are fighting oh yeah their their final battle that's revenge of the sith right yeah yeah at the end of revenge of the sith when anakin and obi-wan are fighting um people on youtube you can probably pretty easily look it up people on youtube have changed the music to to kind of make it better i guess and I, i think they've they've used a couple different scores to do it but john williams does it best i mean he's synonymous with star wars but you could probably look this up and see the scene where they're fighting and it's just it's different with the different music and it just it feels different (laughs) like the the whole thing i don't know how to explain it there's another one in um uh pirates of the caribbean in the very first one when jack sparrow he's standing on the mast and he's coming into port and it's the it's very triumphant music right there, there's somebody that has taken that scene and they've put different scores to it. Like they do creepy, like weird music to it. And it just, it changes, it changes the scene altogether. Like if you have no other context, here's this pirate coming into town. And then there's like this ridiculous, like <laughs> funny music. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's just weird how the score really, really, really changes how you feel about certain things happening in certain movies. Have you ever, um, it totally reminds me. It's the same thing, exactly the same thing. Have you heard of the Walk of, uh, was it the Walk of Life project or something like that? The Dire Straits song, Walk of Life. You know that kind of lighthearted. Yeah. The Walk of Life. Yeah. If you take ending scenes from movies that are supposed to be like depressing or downers, and people have like put that song in its place, it completely like completely changes the tone of the scene like it becomes like they did to the end of um like chinatown the jack nicholson movie yeah yeah or i want to say like the usual suspects like these different like like profound moments at the end of movies that are like 
you know, the not happy endings. All of a sudden, you put this lighthearted, like, do 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 do, and you're like, ah, shucks. Oh well, life goes on. <laughs> you know, that's exactly the yeah. feeling you get. It's just interesting. By, just by changing the song. Interesting fact about Chinatown: that whole movie was scored by one person, and then they fired that person because they didn't like it, and brought in another guy. He he scored, he wrote the music for it in ten days. Ah, nice. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> just because you said Chinatown. Uh, never actually saw that one either. I keep talking about these things I never... Whatever. If I talk about things I didn't know about, I'd never talk about anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, each... each to, I keep saying it, but to sum up film scores and soundtracks, each decade brought its own, I guess, flavor to, uh, to movies. And I don't know where we are now. In 2020, I have no clue. Um, I, I still like film scores. I'm going to listen to them. I'll tell you, one of my favorite parts of a movie is that final second of the movie that that transforms into the credits i i oh, don't know yeah, what it transition. is there's a transition in almost every movie i watch that as soon as the credits roll there's like music that it i don't know what it, that's that's like one of my favorite parts of a movie i look mm-hmm. forward to you know the last few seconds of the movie moving into the trailers i'm, I'm sorry the credits well one of the you reminded me with the end game thing about the score. It worked really well with that scene where everybody's coming out of the portals. But do you remember the uh, credits scene where they show like every Marvel character and then the, the actor that played them? Yes. And then it gets to the actual, you know, five Avengers, six, Avengers, five, whatever it is, five Avengers. And it shows like Avengers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, the original Avengers where, you know, they have Hawkeye and Scarlet, uh, Black Widow and uh, Captain America and Thor and Hulk and Iron Man. Yeah. And uh, it shows the actors, and then, then their signature and has their name, and the music builds and changes. Yeah. That was a really cool scene because it kept building and throughout all six of them, and until it gets to Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man, where it's all triumphant, it's like the main theme blasts, and it's like boom, boom, boom. And it's like the perfect timing, and you, I've seen reaction videos of people in the theater cheering at that part because he just died in the movie. You know the first guy that started the whole thing, so they showed him as like a Danoma, like an endpoint to the end game, huh? and wow. uh, and that the music, that the score just went triumphant and it just blasted. It was it was a really cool moment, and it would have been nothing with a bland paint by numbers credit <laughs> music like or like maybe like a oompa loompa oompa band, right? Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, well, or what reminded me, the, the thing that you and I both love is that end scene of... Um, yodeling? Yeah, we both love it. Of the what? No, just yodeling. The end scene of New Hope when the, the award ceremony, oh, take yeah. out the music and the entire thing is awkward and oh, hilarious. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, there needs to be more of that. That was so good. Yeah. Oh, that was so good. All you hear is people coughing and... Chewbacca randomly yelling because nobody's uh, anything. <laughs> the the droids beep beep beep. But yeah, watch that scene and think about it without a score, and it's just a bunch of people standing there not saying a word. It's, yeah. it's so awkward. It's yeah. So well, if you're if you're listening and you are watching your next movie, pay attention to the score and how it's leading you to one emotion to the next, and understand that in the 40s. They thought you were an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) And do nothing but. Don't pay attention to the dialogue, the screen, the movement. Just listen to the score and feel your feelings. Go on the ride. So speaking of feeling feelings, 
I was as a transition. I I had my thing was gonna be about sound effects, but there was a little bit I found about scores and stuff and soundtracks that I thought was still interesting. So just to hit that nostalgia button that we both like so much, what do you have for like maybe surprise soundtracks that you really like that you wouldn't have expected or Rocky Horror Picture Show? Okay, there you go. I know every word. <laughs> See, I know like let's do the time warp again. That's about it. Like I I don't know that one that well. Rose tint my world. Is Sing. one of my all-time favorites. I, I my throat. I, oh, well, otherwise. I'd, otherwise, I'd be singing it right now. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, damn it, Janet. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Rocky Horror Picture Show is probably one of those that when you look at me, you don't see me driving in my car to work singing every single <laughs> word to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, but other than that, I like. Some of my favorites, I've already mentioned, Forrest Gump and uh, Pulp Fiction. I love, matter of fact, half of the movie, Pulp Fiction, for me, is the soundtrack. Yep. Like, like it's a good movie. Like, it's a great movie. But if you if he scored that movie and if it was just a score, not an actual soundtrack, I, I'm sure I'd feel differently about positive. Well, it's like Jerry Rafferty stuck in the middle with you, and that will be always linked to a dude top, chopping off a cop's ear and yeah. dancing around, you know? Because of Quentin Tarantino. Yep. So other other surprises um, as far as soundtracks go, not sound, not scores. Not scores, motion. like soundtracks that you would just pop the CD in maybe and listen to the whole the songs on it. You know what? Just there's probably a dozen or so I could name off the top of my. I mean, I can't name off the top of my head, but if you give me a minute, something will pop in my head and I'll be like, oh shit, I love this. But uh, what's one of yours? Well, the biggest one I'd say the one that it's almost like brute force happened to me. Is I bought the soundtrack. This is actually pretty apropos to what's going on because I was young and didn't understand. So the soundtrack for The Crow came out. Oh, yes. And I was thinking it was the score for The Crow because some mm. of the music in that was like, you know, like the atmospheric music. I thought it was really cool. Stuff, the stuff yeah. they played the trailer, which I later, years and years later, did find the scores like this guy named Graham Ravel or something like that did it. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's still pretty good. But I bought the soundtrack. So I got the CD. I was 18, went to college, it had nothing, you know, none of the songs, none of the sounds and stuff I thought were going to be on it were on it. So I'm like, eh, whatever. And I, I listened to the whole thing like once. I was like, oh, whatever, I don't know. It's what, And I just stuck it in my CD collection was going to be the ones I never touched again. But my roommate found it. And he's like, hey, can I listen to this? I'm like, yeah, whatever. And he'd listen to it. And then he listened to it. And then again, and he, he loved it. And he listened to that stupid CD over and over again. It started growing on me. To this day, I fucking love the Crow soundtrack because it just wormed its way into my head over time. Okay, I have a now... little bit of a different experience with the Crow soundtrack. I sought it out because of the music. Yeah, that was a, that was another one. It has the Cure, it has Nine Inch Nails, it has the Cure, it has that Stone Temple uh, Pilots. It's got yeah, Helmet, yeah, Rage Against Machine. It's got it's got it's so a much great soundtrack. It's an yeah. amazing and I. I, I was, like I said, I was a stupid kid. I was a stupid 18-year-old because I listened to it once like, eh, whatever. It is an amazing soundtrack. It's got so many good songs on it. I can listen to that thing on a loop. It's Besides well, the fact that it just takes me back to that time. But uh, Along the same timeline, very close to it, was Judgment Night. Yeah. Um, that took um, like grunge bands and hip-hop bands, and they did songs together. Mm-hmm. And I remember that being like an unbelievable soundtrack surprisingly good soundtrack and the movie well this is the next part i want to talk about but i'll just jump right into it soundtracks that are way better than the movies they came from for me queen of the damned 
Oh, yeah, that was a terrible movie. Yeah, the movie was utterly was forgettable. Anne Rice book, right? Right. The soundtrack was surprisingly very, very good. It was a really good soundtrack. It had a lot of like late 90s, early aughts, like new metal type of stuff. It was actually a, a very good soundtrack. Yeah, I'm, I'm having trouble thinking of something else that another soundtrack that I. But I did I, find a Rolling Stone list of uh, play the album, burn the film, the greatest soundtracks from bad movies. Ooh, hit me with a few. Uh, so let's see, they got Saturday Night Fever on there, <laughs> of course. It was a good movie though. Yeah, whatever. Well, uh, it's I think it's very of its time. Like it's. Well, you gotta, yeah. If you yeah. if you watch it now, thinking it's of the same standards. It's gonna, it's not going to speak any languages of people today. It's just going to be something like, I remember that from when I was a kid or something like that. Right. Uh, Flash Gordon. <laughs> Queen. Yep. Queen did some great fucking songs on Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon itself, it's a can't be like so bad it's good type of movie, but it's not. Um, Under the Cherry Moon, which apparently was the follow-up to Purple Rain. Yep. And then, like I said, we'll come back to it. Sorry. It's on their list. Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> <laughs> I see now I know this this silence is going to be edited out but I want but that, everybody to know long, that there was a pause silence. there was a pause where I had to control my emotions <laughs> like, because let, ACDC let just, did that soundtrack and it was fantastic and no, then the is, movie was fantastic okay, I was going to say because the list is great soundtracks on bad movies so they're calling it bad nope, movies I completely disagree that magazine is toilet paper Maximum Overdrive is one of the best movies of all time. Yep, I, I knew that would push the buttons. <laughs> I was, was waiting a, for there it. Was, there was another pause there. <laughs> Steve had to question whether Just, I was being serious or not. Yeah, ah, the anger. Well, strap in because the next one on the list is Judgment Night. Well, I the movie was uh, Dennis Leary... I want to say Emilio Estevez. Maybe maybe that's just because of the Maximum Overdrive connection. But No, yeah, it was Emilio Estevez. And, um, and these, Cuba Gooden Jr. Yeah, and they get in an RV, and they are going to a, an event somewhere, and then their RV breaks down in like the bad bad neighborhood, and uh, they witness a murder, and then the people murdering the, the other... They get chased. It's a It's a decent movie, but it's certainly nothing that... I mean, it's yeah, a great soundtrack. Really good soundtrack. It's it's exactly what you were talking about. The um, they're talking about how they it was a inspired rock hip hop mashups. Yeah. Cypress Hill, Pearl Jam, yeah. uh, House of Pain. Like they all did stuff in this movie. Yeah, so. it was it's good. If you're uh, listening and you have Spotify, look up the Judgment Night soundtrack, and you will not be disappointed. It's okay. They call it rock, but it was really pulling heavy on the the grunge. Like grunge is rock. It's a yeah. grunge is yeah. rock. It's rock. Yeah, it is. It's it's grunge. It's alternative. Yeah. If you ask, if you ask 1993 MTV, it's alternative. Yeah, yeah. New grunge alternative. That's one of the taglines from station I used to listen to. Your new grunge alternative. But uh, so last action hero. I don't remember. Like I oh my god. Like one oh time. Oh my god. That is one. That, okay, I'm just gonna say maximum overdrive. You take a back seat. Last action hero. <laughs> that is, I, I just phenomenal. Queensrÿche, Tesla, Cypress Hill, uh, Allison Le- Change, AC/DC, Def Leppard. I'm telling you right now, last action hero has its problems because of the time. It's a long movie and they cut a lot out of it. It jumps around. It's 
like it's trying really hard to be something it isn't. Maximum Overdrive, Last Action Hero might be the two best films ever. Anthrax and Aerosmith, too. Yes. The pedigree for this thing is unreal. I was like, wow, I got to watch this movie again. Well, and that's like of the time. See, and that's, I guess, in the 90s, that's what they did instead of scored films was they just put together a bunch (laughs) because What's popular? Here we go. Well, um, Tesla does a song, Last Action Hero. It's in my top 10. Hmm. Yeah, it's I, in my, I, I'm honest to God, it's in my top 10. I do want to see that again. I feel like I was on the on yeah, well, bandwagon. Buckle in because it is a long fucking movie. <laughs> like I watched it the one time I saw the theater when it came out. I'd never seen it again. Yeah, that is, uh, that movie really takes me back to the summer of 93. That was something else. That was a summer. <laughs> uh, this one, this one, um, the movie means nothing to me. I didn't see the movie until literally like a year ago. But uh, Reality Bites. Yeah. Yep. Had Lisa singles. Loeb. Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't see singles either. But I know it was Bites, the same. Yeah. Yeah. The it was the same. Thread. It was the, like the Gen X, supposed to be the Gen X, you know, yeah. quintessential movie. Yeah. Uh, it had like, this is like The Knack and Crowded House, but it had Lisa Loeb stay. And full disclosure, I fucking love that song. That uh, is a song that takes me back. That's in my top 10 as well. I, I can sing that song from start to finish. I can. And plus, it doesn't hurt the fact that I had a huge crush on Lisa Loeb when I was. Oh a yeah, still do. She's a good-looking woman. I, I guess I haven't seen her, but she was cute as a butt. She had that librarian yeah. thing, the little look up, short black dress in the video. Look up Lisa Loeb stay acoustic. Oh yeah, and you'll have it on repeat. Yeah, dare that I say it? That's song. in my top ten. It is a lyrically complex song. She doesn't. There's no chorus. She just says that you know she just goes from start to finish. And I guess this is the movie that like she was a she was unsigned. And this movie came out, and that thing shot to the top of the charts. Uh, let's see. Blah, 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 blah. City of Angels, 1998, with the Goo Goo Dolls. Goo Goo Dolls slide. No, not yeah. slide. It was, uh, no, it's their slow slow song. Uh, Iris. Iris, yeah. Uh, Lattice Moore said Eric Clapton. They had a pretty good one. Um, trying to think of. See, and this one gets a lot of hate, and for whatever reason, I actually, I'm not as hardcore about it as you are about Maximum Overdrive. But Garden State, I actually really did like Garden State. Yeah, I I saw it just the once. That's and that's just because it's JD from Scrubs. Yeah, Zach Braff. Basically, this his scored. He scored it. He he just picked all his favorite songs from like the Shins and Coldplay and threw them in there. But I I really liked it. It did, and it get I got a Grammy for the best Natalie, soundtrack. Natalie Portman, right? Yeah, Natalie, Natalie Portman. Portman yeah. Zach Braff. Yeah, it, for something about that movie, actually, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really good, but. I get why people, you know, the um, Tron. Le- the last one on the list is Tron Legacy. A lot yeah, of EDM. Yeah, Def, Def, Def Punk did Def the whole Punk, soundtrack. Yeah, I love that movie. I, know I, that... I actually enjoyed it too. Here's there a was a, there was a teaser reveal an E3 clip that I love watching because it's like a reaction video where the people you know didn't even know it was coming. All of a sudden you're watching this and it slowly dawns in the crowd that this is a Tron sequel. That they show Jeff Bridges and all, and the people like losing their minds. I don't, it's kind of cool. I, I really like watching that. Um, here's an interesting little tidbit about Tron. Uh, Tron was, the original Tron was scored by Wendy Carlos, who is formerly Walter Carlos. So Walter uh, is transgender, is Wendy Carlos, mm-hmm. was one of the founders of the Moog machine. You know, the, the synthesizer that... No. Uh, okay, look up. Moog, M-O-O-G. Anybody that's listening, don't do it now because 
I mean, I know normally we tell people to pause and go look it up, but actually look up the album, the Moog cookbook. But mm. there is a synthesizer that gives you the ability to play, um, like choose the violin. And then it's like a piano, but instead of playing the notes on the piano, it sounds like a violin. And then you change it to flute and you're playing the notes on the piano and it sounds like a flute. You know what I'm talking about? Then you could change it to dogs barking and everything yes. is dog yes. barking. <laughs> so this Wendy Carlos, formerly Walter Carlos, I, I get really confused about, never mind. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, is it trans male? Or I don't trans- know. I don't know yeah. when it was done. I don't, it doesn't matter. I'm for this personal, for this part, I'm just going to say the pronoun is, is she because okay. she's Wendy Carlos. Anyway, she invented or helped invent this device that does this, the Moog machine, the Moog keyboard and everything. Um, they call it that because the guy that invented it, that actually invented it, his last name was Moog. Um, she did Tron, but she also did another movie that is one of my all-time favorite movies, probably like top five for sure, and that is The Shining. Ooh. Oh, she'll did the actual yes. uh, the theme music, and like the flyover so, music? So anybody that's listening right now, pause the podcast, <laughs> turn off the lights, take out your pants, some place alone with the lights off and go to YouTube and play the shining soundtrack. You will emerge a different person. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you have your pants off. Yeah. yeah. It, there's, there's no better example of a score for a film that is fucked up. <laughs> also, is, no better example of furries given fellatio. Just saying. I feel like I know what you did there. I'm just talking about the scene with the guy in the fucking suit going down on the other dude. <laughs> anyway, uh, The Shining, the movie is one thing, watching it with the movie. But if you listen to The Shining soundtrack by yourself in the dark, you are going to find some things <laughs> out about yourself. It's like sensory deprivation. It is absolutely. But on the headphones, shut off the lights. And get ready to be a different person. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> so that was like Rolling Stone's list of soundtracks that are better than the movie. They do have a list. I, I figured, you know, why not? Because we like our list of the just the greatest soundtracks of all time. Yeah. So just hit the top 10. Why not? See what you think. Number Pulp 10. Fiction. Oh. I'll just hit the number 10. Pretty in Pink was number 11. So honorary mention. Okay. But number 10. Oh, brother, where art thou? Yep. Absolutely okay. agree. That is a yeah. great soundtrack. Little gospel, little bluegrass. Like stuff that is normally not my genre. Great songs from that movie. Yeah. Um, number nine, this is Spinal Tap, which oh, yes. I, I have never seen. I, that That's one of my like regret movies. Like oh, I got to get to that and see it. You have to. Also couldn't name any songs from it. Uh, Big Bottom, Big Bottom. It's the song about the fat women. It, so take Parks and Recreation. The Office, that style, that yeah. mockumentary style. No, I, I get, I know what it's oh, okay. about. Because I've seen, I've seen like Best in Show. You know, I've seen other stuff from Christopher Guest, but um, I just, I guess, I haven't. I, this one, I never got around to. I, yeah. I, you know. I mean, the music, the the music is they they create these typical of the generation rock, uh, heavy metal songs. So, yeah. I mean, they're not incredibly memorable, or otherwise you probably would have heard them on the radio. I mean, they're they're funny. That's like they're good because they're funny. It's a comedy. It's a comedy album. The songs are like what you'd expect to hear out of uh, Dio or, <laughs> you know, Metallica or, you know, those types of bands. But they're hilarious. They're like the songs about big bottom girls and just Bro. the lyrics. 
the the lyrics are crazy, you know. Well, let's see here. Stonehenge, where a man is a man, and the children dance to the pipes of Pan, <laughs> apparently. Um, tonight, they're going to rock you tonight. <laughs> yep. Uh, let's see. They said from the brain dead 70s boogie like Big Bottom to epic art metal like Stonehenge. Yeah. Look up look up the uh, the lyrics to Big Bottom and read yeah. them. <laughs> look seriously right now? Or... Yeah, do it. Do it. Uh, All right. if, if you want, I'll do it. Okay, you do. I'll just I'll find it and I'll go number eight here. Rushmore saw it once. Couldn't really tell you much about the soundtrack. Number seven is Pulp Fiction. So yeah, Pulp Fiction was seven. Seven, not even top five. Oh, that hurts a little bit. Okay, here we go. I'm gonna read you the lyrics. I'll read them as best as I can. I'm not singing it. I'm just gonna read it to you. The bigger the cushion, the sweeter the pushing. That's <laughs> what I said. The looser the waistband, the deeper the quicksand. Or so I've read. My my baby fits me like a flesh tuxedo. <laughs> I love to sink her with my pink torpedo. torpedo. <laughs> oh, God, I got to watch this. this is, Big Bottom, crazy. talk about bum cakes. My gal's got them. <laughs> so, uh, oh, that is yeah. great. I got I to watch that movie. You absolutely have to. You have to watch Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap, actually. So, okay. Okay. So, uh, Pulp Fiction was seven. Six is Superfly. Oh, yes. I saw that, but exploitation. Oh, yeah. That's a, not the last you're going to get of that. Uh, five is Saturday Night Fever. So I guess, you know, whatever you say about the movie, the album is going to be timeless. Well, timeless is probably not the right word. Remembered, no matter what. Number four, Beatles, Hard Day's Night. Yeah. yeah. Never saw any Beatles movie. Don't have a desire to see a Beatles movie, to tell um, you. I think it for the cultural references, maybe it might be worth trying to catch it. Or at least... Sure skimming it i mean it's uh, well number three is the harder they come apparently the reggae equivalent to saturday night fever they have no idea never heard of it probably couldn't this is a rolling stone from. list right right the, yeah rolling stone yeah, yeah. rolling stones are fucking but anyway well, there you go number two what what do you think might be number two or number one just i think you might get one force gump pulp fiction i mean no purple rain's number two yeah i i agree number one is beatles help Yep. Yeah. Boring. How does the wall not make it on the top ten is what kills me? Pink Floyd? Yeah, Pink Floyd's the wall. How does that not make it next to this fucking list? Travesty. That's what it is. So, that was my little contribution to soundtracks. But I I did find this stuff about sound effects. And it is what it is. Sound effects are cool. But, I, you know, unless you're hearing it, this going to only mean so much to you. But I found some of the stuff about like iconic movie sounds and how they were made that was actually I thought was kind of cool. Yep. But uh, I just because I'm me, I, I always look at this like the origin of the sound effects. And I looked at this, this whole article about how like where do you think sound effects got its start? Really? I mean, the obvious where the sound effects got their origin, like, like sound effects, like like they had to make, you know, this is the sound of troops marching along or you know, a whistle or, you know, like just the background music to try to add something to what was going on in a drama. Where was its origin? Where do you think it got its start? Um, Police Academy. <laughs> that would be a little past, but that's where it got perfected, you know, with that one. Game. <laughs> yeah. Michael, where? Michael Winslow, something like that. Um, radio, all the radio dramas before television. Oh, yeah, before, yeah, yeah. Before movies, before all that, the radio dramas. Rudy Valley. In the 30s, with his hour-long radio show, it became common practice to have a, to have a little five or ten-minute dramatic skit featuring some well-known personality of stage or screen. 
uh, as the skits got more complex, he started thinking I need to actually spruce, spruce this up and have sound effects. So he actually got a separate sound department made completely for sound effects, and it just went out from there. CBS Radio um, went with Orson Welles, got truckloads of sand to an eighth floor studio. So one of his dramas had troops marching through a desert. sounded like they were actually marching on sand. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> like, they went nuts with it. Like, once they figured out they needed sounds for these things, they went cr- they went crazy with it. As an aside, have you ever seen the Radio City Murders? Um, Radio City Murder or Murders. It it's sounds basically, familiar. No, I don't think I have. It's basically uh, Clue, which okay. I'll never besmirch Clue, but <laughs> it's it's like a whodunit style murder mystery at a radio one of those old timey radio broadcasts from like radio you know rko production kind of thing uh if you haven't seen it you should add that to your list Hmm. radio city murder yeah okay that sounds good um but i felt like jumping into the just how are they making these sounds the sounds we all know and love so number one on the list of course lightsabers um you know i've seen it in the behind-the-scenes documentary. I know that the TIE fighter lasers were like a wrench being hit on like a... There was a telephone pole being held up by like airline cable, and it's like somebody taking a wrench and hitting it. As far as a lightsaber goes, it's got to be like an electric toothbrush or something like that, slowed down. Hmm. Um, Lightsabers is... Let's see, blah, blah, blah. He, the, the guy that made it, Ben Burt, Burt with two Ts, Fancy. He combined the hum of an idle film projector, so not the clack, 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 but just turning a film projector on, mm-hmm. and the buzz from an old TV set. <laughs> that sounds it's so random. How do you even get that together? So he did that. That's the basic, like, you turn it on, and it goes, that's that's yep. the sound. And then the swinging sound, um, he, uh, say he captured the lightsaber swooshing sound, when he twirled and swiped a shotgun microphone in front of the speaker playing the combined sound. So he had a stationary thing making the sound, and the actual microphone, he swung it around in front of it, and that's the sound of a lightsaber swinging. Yeah, that's cool. That's that's unreal to me. Like, how do you that, how do you even come up? Like, that's... I see this over and over when I'm looking at these. Like, you have to have that as your life. You have to live and breathe sound to be able to even think of that. Like, what random thing can I work with to make a weird sound? That's nuts. I think in this in the documentary, it showed him walking around with his recorder, and I think he just records a whole bunch of stuff. Like that's what he does is he walks around with this digital recorder hmm. and records strange shit. And then later on, I need a sound for this engine starting up, or I need a sound for this laser going pew pew. And he's like, ah, I got that. I think that's how he does at least in the later movies. I don't know what he did back in the day. Um, hmm. but he's also pretty known for using the Wilhelm scream. <laughs> well, hold off on that thought. <laughs> um, so Jurassic Park, the T-Rex, the T-Rex's roar. He slowed down various animal noises from a baby elephant squeal to an alligator's gurgling to a tiger's snarl. And the sound of the T-Rex killing a fleeing little dinosaur or whatever it was, was his Jack Russell Terrier. He <laughs> put it as Jack Russell Terrier. That's fine. What was it that, I think it was one of our trivia questions, I think Rob had it, which was the sound of the velociraptors was turtles having sex or something? <laughs> I believe that's what it was. The velociraptors yeah. was like Galapagos turtles having sex is what I remember it being. Um, let's see here. 
Psycho, like I said, we talked about Psycho, the actual sounds of, like you said, if you took away the music, all you would have the sounds of the stabbing, hitting flesh, because yeah. they actually did. You forget about that when you listen to the, like, right, that overpowers everything, but there was a thunk, thunk sound mm-hmm. of a knife going to flesh. What happened was the guy in charge of, um, the guy in charge of the score actually was doing the sound effects for it. They got Hitch- Hitchcock decided he wanted to listen to the sound of somebody stabbing melons. And he sat there with his eyes closed until he came up with the right sound. He said, the kaba- the cassava. <laughs> and that's the melon we need. Yep, the cassava But he just sat melon. there with his eyes closed, just stabbing melons. Mm. Um, the boulder falling in Raiders of the Lost Ark. That was a car in neutral running down a gravel road. That's it. <laughs> yeah, easy. Just, sometimes it's just like the obvious stuff. Uh, Wolverine's claws in the X-Men, the sound of it making coming out is combining... The sound of a knife being drawn from a sheath and a turkis car- turkey carcass being torn apart. <laughs> okay. You'd expect that to have the claws coming out of flesh. Right, yeah. Like, for every... I'm going to combine a film projector with a weird TV sound that is completely bonkers. It's like, I'm going to have a knife coming out of somebody's hand. Let's listen to a knife and skin. Okay, <laughs> cool, gotcha. <laughs> um, Godzilla's Roar. That okay. is a double bass with a leather glove coated in pine tar resin rubbing along the strings of the double bass. Another random one. Somebody somebody in Japan's like, what am I going to do? Let me stick my fucking glove in pine tar and rub it on a, a bass. Beautiful. We got Because they tried animal noises and all kinds of stuff and it just didn't sound right. And then you got the one of the most iconic monster noises of all time. Godzilla. Godzilla! <laughs> And then number one, of course, is the Wilhelm scream. Yes. You can watch a, God, what's this one? 12-minute video of just nothing but Wilhelm screams on the loop. But it was, uh, I think we talked about this before, but it was the first used during the 1951 film Distant Drums when an alligator attacks a soldier. And then it was named after the charge at Feather River where a character named Private Wilhelm gets shot in the leg with arrows. Um, but yeah, it's just somebody recorded this thing as a, you know, to, for a stock as a scream. And it became an in-joke for filmmakers. Like, for years and years and years, people just didn't realize that all these filmmakers were using it, kind of mocking their audience. Like, they're never going to realize. They've heard this scream a thousand times, and they're going to hear it a thousand more. (laughs) But yeah, that's uh, some of the iconic sounds we have. Uh, The blaster, here we go. Yep, it's a steel cable. Yeah. It was a uh, guy, Ben Burt. He beat a cable with a hammer. Yeah. Yeah, that's in the documentary. I remember that. Uh, Wookiees, the uh, the Wookiee language, Chewbacca, mm-hmm. is walruses. He got a collection of, uh, yeah, walruses. <laughs> and the uh, TIE Fighters is at the base, the sound of an elephant. That's drastically the screech of a baby elephant. And then, no, no, not a baby elephant. Just an elephant that's been drastically changed in the studio. Yeah. The the at Walkers is bicycle chains being dropped on concrete. <laughs> wow. And the speeder bikes is plain sounds, including a P-51 Mustang and a Lockheed P-38 Lightning. Crushed skulls from Terminator 2. It is sticking a mic at the crack of a door outside Skywalker Ranch where they're making whoosh sounds. That's weird. Oh, okay. It's a pistachio nut being ground into a metal plate. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just I thought some of these were kind of cool, These um, how they got these sound effects. But I just, I wanted to ask if you had a moment, like, 
a sound effect moment besides like the obvious like i love star wars so i will think of lightsabers but a moment where a sound effect almost made the scene if not was the crux of the whole movie because i have well, an example in my mind i want to know if maybe i'm gonna maybe move can... away from movies for a second and say pretty much every cartoon i've ever seen oh yeah with the legs when the legs are <laughs> yeah exactly yeah slide whistle Slide whistle, uh, whatever else it was made for, it was made for cartoons. Uh, there was a slide whistle that actually almost ruined a James Bond movie. I'm trying <laughs> to think of which one it is. Uh, Roger Moore. It's a, definitely a Roger Moore because all yeah. Roger Moores were pretty campy. But it was, uh, I'm going to type in, I'm going to go to Google and I'm going to type in James Bond slide whistle. <laughs> and it, as soon as I started typing slide, it came up. Here it is, the man with the golden gun. So it almost ruined the movie. There's a lot of b- bonkers shit in that movie anyway, <clears throat> but he takes a jump in a car. He jumps over a ravine and the jump is actually kind of curved. So he does like a, a perfect like loop in midair. And when he does, it does the slide whistle. I'm going to, I'm going to play it and see if it, see if you can hear it. No, you're not going to be able to hear it cause it's on my headphones, but oh, that's a stupid commercial. Can you hear it? Nah, I can't hear anything. So, crap. Yeah. No, I Didn't hear it at all? All right. Uh, I've just turned up my computer so loud. Anyway, <laughs> probably not letting me because of Skype or whatever. But anyway, it's, just look up the man with the golden gun car <laughs> jump on YouTube. And, like, it does not belong in James, Mo- no, James Bond movie. so campy. Like, you can't put a slide whistle. Like, that would be the ultimate challenge for any kind of, like, musical score guy is to make a slide whistle sound menacing or compelling or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> oh, anyway. But uh, well, what I was thinking of is it's it's probably not it's in one of my favorite movies, and it's probably it's the best scene in my mind in that movie. So it's probably one of the greatest movie scenes in, for me ever is the Dark Knight. Can you think of what scene I'm talking about? In the Dark Knight, the Bat Pod? No, like the most compelling scene in the movie, I would say. I would say, I guess. It's when he's kidnapping the Chinese guy. No. It's when he's um him and the Batman and the Joker are doing the interrogation. Okay. So they're in the in the interview room. You know he slams his head on the table and the Joker starts to lay out exactly what's going on. Yeah. And you get this slow build in the background. You know you got the, you got the regular music, the menacing music, and then you got the slow build. But also you just like this unsettling, off-putting noise that's building and building and building until at the very end he pretty much reveals what's going on and Batman's like loses his mind. It's just this like loud, just grating sound. It's like this. Well, that's Hans Zimmer. That's Hans Zimmer. Bring it a full circle. He took a razor blade and scraped it along a piano wire. Yep. Which that's is so also fitting. From the, the beginning of the movie when they're doing the heist. Yeah. At, at the very beginning. But it builds up more than that. It's like a lot more poignant, I guess, in that scene or something. Yeah. Because it's just the low, the slow build up. Like it just. I, I'll watch that scene over and over again because I love it so much and. Because it's just it's perfect. Just the acting, the dialogue, the the atmosphere, and the realization, like how oh my god, the Joker was in charge the entire time in control yeah. of it's, this entire thing. It's and no just, maximum overdrive. Well, that's true. But what is <laughs> what is this is what I could ask you? I and never get an answer because there's no comparison. Dark Knight. <laughs> maximum overdrive they're, they're pretty close well it'd be last action hero ah yes dark knight no wait no maximum overdrive number one last action hero then dark knight that's that's probably how it goes but now we got 
now it's scientific. It's all laid out there. We yeah. know. Uh, well, that's what I had for sound effects. Just as because I I had the feeling you would have a lot to uh, rich information to share about sound tracks and sound scores and stuff like that. So I just had a little bit of sound effects. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, we probably have barely touched on everything that I'd like to talk about. With um, the one thing I'd like to leave you with um, when it comes to movie soundtracks and scores, I guess, is I'm going to take you back to the 80s and something the 80s perfected and handed off to future generations. And I call that the montage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody needs a good montage. What was it in South Park? They yeah. had a song called Sports Training Montage. Gotta show them get a little bit better every scene. Sports yeah. Training Montage. <laughs> yeah. All you need is a montage. Yeah. <laughs> yep, the montage came from probably way before the 80s. I could not tell you the origin oh, of the montage. Sure, but, but, but I'm telling you right now, the 80s perfected yep. the montage. Gotta do Karate Kid. Gotta <laughs> Rocky. Hell yeah. You know, they all had a montage. No retreat, no surrender. God damn it. Yep. Iron Eagle. Yeah. Everything. Bet- everything. That sh- you, you gotta show. You gotta. You gotta show your hero deserves what he got at the end. That's right. And he's earned it. So you need to have a little bit of time passing. You need to have like a rock and beat showing how hard it is, how much they're putting the effort in. Yeah. Montage. Oh. Okay. Oh. We almost forgot one of the best soundtracks of all time. How do we forget this? What? Lost Boys. Oh. Okay. So it goes. maximum overdrive lost boys i am on a page right now that i've just googled and it is the top 10 80s montage songs nice and at number 10 we have maniac from flashdance she's a maniac maniac oh number nine kenny loggins footloose Mm -hmm. if that's his only song in the top 10 then that's sad number seven Hearts on Fire by John Cafferty in the movie Rocky IV. Okay. It's when he's out training in Siberia. Number six is Survivor. Eye of the Tiger. Yeah, there we go. From Rocky. <laughs> God damn, there's another one. Rocky number five, Robert Tapper. No easy way out. Yeah, you perfected the montage. I mean, that's Rocky's. Okay, I, I can't argue with number four, Ollie and Jerry. No stopping us from the movie Breaking. Not Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo? Nope, just Breaking. Ah. Okay, this one's a li- I don't... I, I can't call it a cop-out because it's a legitimate film, but number three is Stan Bush, The Touch, from the 1986 animated Transformers, the movie. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. You got the touch. <laughs> you got the power. Fun fact, little pre-trivia question. What other movie was that song featured in that was wildly different from Transformers, the movie? SpongeBob. No, that'd be the same genre. Uh, Boogie Nights. Oh, no kidding. When Marky Mark and... What's his name? They're singing that song. They haven't recorded, but they don't have the money to pay to get their single. And they're like, "No, it's gold. It's gold. Just give the single. We'll pay you at when the once the uh, you know once the money starts coming in. It's like you can't. You need the. He says it's a catch twenty two. You need the single to get the money, but until you have the money, you can't get the single. Anyways, that was the song he said. And I remember watching Boogie Nights for the first time, going, "What the fuck? That's from Transformers." <laughs> well, number two is Scarface. Push it to the limit. If you don't get that one, that's going to be disappointing because apparently the Simpsons parodied it. Oh, I'm sure they did, but I only saw Scarface one time, too. So. Oh, all right. Yeah. Okay, so we're at number one. What can you think? Uh, what have I skipped? 
Uh, it's got to be Karate Kid, right? Karate Kid. You're the yeah. best around. Nothing's going to ever keep, keep, you keep you down. You're the best. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, shit. I've, cl- I've clicked on a Spotify playlist called 80s Action Film Montage Music. <laughs> <laughs> for later, for later. Yeah, I'll be checking that out later. Turn the lights off. Take the pants off. So here's another list. Let's see if there's more Kenny Loggins. Yeah, this list has You're the Best by the Tiger, some stuff, No Easy Way Out, Hearts on Fire, Push It to the Limit. See, this is, this. come on, come on, people. Ghostbusters, I will, uh, yeah, they I'll call that a montage. Purpose. I'll call yeah. it a montage. I'll allow it. I will allow it. That That is borderline, though, I'll give you it, yeah. We Are Not Alone from the film. It's Carla DeVito's We Are Not Alone from the film The Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. And if you remember the scene when they're all getting buddy-buddy and they're... And they're dancing on the tables. When they're wiling out, yep. Win in the end from the movie Teen Wolf. Aha! I don't see... They don't have an artist of who sang it, so... (laughs) Oh, Mark Safan. Oh, who do you want to be today in Teen Wolf 2? Aha! Once again, I saw that one before I saw the first one. (laughs) Footloose, never. I actually watched a... YouTube clip of Jason Bateman going through and talking about all his, like his, all his roles, all his careers and stuff like that. Yeah. He, he was a, he was a lot more stuff as a kid than I realized, like Silver Spoons. He was in this, a couple of short lived sitcoms that never went anywhere. Of course, when he got to Arrested Development, he's like, he was just like, I was so glad, you know, this turned my life around. This is like yeah. one of the greatest things I ever did. I'm so proud of this. And I was like, yep. yeah, that's right. That deadpan straight man. Ah, Michael Bluth is one of the best straight men in any comedy ever. Yeah. Uh, 1987, Hungry Eyes from Dirty Dancing. Hungry Eyes. See, oh, I know the album. Did this never one not make movie. the other list. My God, Fight to Survive in Bloodsport. Oh shit, yeah. That's also Stan Bush. Hmm. There's another song from Bloodsport that keeps randomly getting stuck in my head, where he's running away from the two government guys. What the? I don't know. You're, you're really going to appreciate this one. I'm into something good. Oh, Naked Gun. Yep, Naked Gun. Yep, yep. Herman Hermits, so, I'm into something good. Me. You have to go into the seat. They walk out of platoon laughing. Yep. Run on the beach and clothesline a couple people. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yeah. Danger uh, Zone, Top Gun. <laughs> oh, God, I love Naked Guns. The song uh, Shine from Better Off Dead. Uh, I remember Better Off Dead. Yeah. I'll be Which is funny because dead. I don't Stand feel bad because this, this person doesn't listen to the podcast, but... Just the other day, I was talking to somebody, and they had no idea what the movie Better Off Dead was. They... I heard you. I was sitting there, and I heard the words Better Off Dead. I almost jumped out. It's like, who's talking about Better Off Dead? Yeah, yeah. My $2. Somebody... You talking about the $2 scene, right? Uh, we, it probably came up, but I was talking to somebody that had never seen that movie. Uh-huh. And if you haven't seen that movie, stop the podcast. Stop and the podcast. Watch it. That was, Where's my $2? That movie's great. Uh Another Sylvester Stallone, Meet Me Halfway from Over the Top. <laughs> such a, ah, oh, that movie, I just. Wait a it's second. It's such a ridiculous movie. Like, who makes a movie about arm wrestling? That's the dumbest, uh, I can't, can't give over that movie. You hush your tone because that is an excellent <laughs> movie about arm wrestling. Now, I'm about to blow your mind. Okay, maybe I'm not going to blow your mind. So. Not, you'll breeze it. Hold on a second. This Fluff is... it. Fluff my mind. Okay. All right. The, there's a typo. There's a typo in this thing because the the song "Meet Me Halfway" they have it listed as Jenny Loggins, <laughs> and I thought for just a split second that 
there was Kenny Loggins and Jenny Loggins. Oh, this person has typed, mistyped Kenny Loggins. It's, it's his secret sister that's been doing all his work, and he just puts his name on it all these years. Uh, there's a song called Study Montage from Back to School. Rodney Dangerfield, thank you. Okay. Uh, one Foot in Front of the Other, Revenge of the Nerds. Man, we're, we're starting to really <laughs> dig, and that would be the end of it. Ah. So I'm going to go back to that list and pretty much listen to that for the rest of the night. Nice. I'm going to make a playlist. Actually, I'll go back to that spotify playlist anyway how are you feeling good good ready you ready, for, to, uh, you ready to close this baby out with some trivia i do yeah. i have a little bit of a change up a bit you'd be willing to humor me but yeah anyways well i thought with the theme of our podcast today i was gonna add can i go first yeah mine's not thematic at all so yeah you, you might as well okay do you know what the term egot is egot EGOT. Can I hear it in a sentence? Uh, there are only a few people who have accomplished the... Uh, there's only a few people who have been able to accomplish the highly coveted EGOT. <laughs> I got it. It is Annie Potts. Because <laughs> Egon got her. So ah, he, he okay. got. So let me see if I... Okay, did you ever watch 30 Rock? That was such a reach. I don't know where that came from with me. Ah, <laughs> uh, no. Sorry. You didn't watch 30 Rock? <clears throat> Tracy Morgan plays a wacky TV personality. He's an actor. And he is obsessed with becoming an EGOT. Let me see if I can give you a list of people who are EGOTs. It's a Scientology thing. Nope. It sounds like a Scientology thing. You gotta go clear first, then you go EGOT. Okay. Let me see if there's anybody... Mel Brooks is an EGOT. Third nipple. Nope. Okay. Second penis uh, head. Richard Rogers. Second penis head. Helen Hayes. Rita Moreno. These people you wouldn't know. Audrey Hepburn is an EGOT. One. It is a very exclusive club. A very ex- It's very, very, very difficult to be in a club. The EGOT club. Whoopi Goldberg. They somehow were able to train a sloth to ride a rhinoceros. That would be difficult, and they're exclusive. So I'm pretty sure I'm right. Barbara Streisand. People that find the two halves of the diamond to make themselves into Mecca Streisand. Liza Minnelli. James Earl Jones. They are honorary. Harry Belafonte. Quincy Jones. They are honorary EGOT. (laughs) Um, People that had kids... That okay. sponged off them for far too long. An EGOT, or to belong to the EGOT club. EGOT winner's circle. Uh, they are people who have all won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. There is very few people who have won all four awards. And What the hell does the word EGOT come from then? E for Emmy, G for Grammy, uh, O for Oscar, and T for Tony. Yeah, I feel really dumb saying that. <laughs> uh, we'll edit that out. That was really stupid. Stupid question. Uh, very, very few people. And the last people I mentioned were honorary. Like, they, they won an honorary Tony because they were involved in, you know, they they won an honorary, you know, they were, let's see, let's go to James Earl Jones. That's not, it could be a goat. G-O-T-E. Could be a toge. <laughs> uh, 
so I guess James Earl Jones got it because the person that he was nominated with, like the other person, refused their their award. Uh, was not. Though he's been a Hollywood icon for decades, James Earl Jones' only Oscar win was an honorary one in 2012. He did receive a Best Actor nomination in 1971 for The Great White Hope, but lost out to George C. Scott for Patton. It's worth noting that Scott had alerted the Academy ahead of time that he refused the nomination, so it was hardly surprising that he wasn't there to accept the actual award. So, mm. apparently he was given an honorary Oscar. Good enough. And, yeah. Force choke the shit out of anybody that disagrees. And, just another little factoid, the term EGOT was coined by an actor from the television show Miami Vice. Can you guess which one? Uh, fuck. Yes, you're right. Philip Michael Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Good if, you didn't come, if you didn't come up with Don Johnson right away, I yeah. know who you were thinking about. Was it the, was it Tubbs or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Crockett yeah. and Tubbs. Yeah. Tubbs and Crockett. Anyway, that was my That's trivia what... question. EGOT. Hmm. And in the show 30 Rock, uh, Tracy Morgan's character is obsessed with getting all four awards. I'm pretty sure ERGOT is a type of fungus that drives you insane. So, yeah. Well, there you go. Uh-huh. All right. I'm ready to fail miserably, miser- miserably at your trivia question. Go. Well, I have. I found this thing about conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Mainly mundane, more mundane conspiracy theories that people suspect are true but can't prove. Not like grand, you know, moon landing fakings or 9/11 inside job stuff. Okay. So I thought maybe I would like start to describe this. See if you can guess what the, the theory is, like what the payoff is. Okay. So there's people out there that think there's conspiracy theory about Throwback Thursday. As in Facebook's, you know, throwback Thursday, put up a picture of yourself from years ago. What do you yes. think the theory is? The, the theory is, is, I know this. The theory is, is that it's a freebie that we're giving these tech companies our facial images, our images from long ago, so it can learn the algorithm of our faces and steal our data. That's exactly right. It's yes. a throwback Thursday is a conspiracy to get, you know, the computer AI to learn that's right. Aging. Yes. And I'll tell you right now, Facebook's face recognition and Google's for that matter is unfucking believable. I uh my my parents' 50th wedding anniversary was today. Actually, it's past midnight now, so it was yesterday. And so there were a ton of photos that Facebook that my family and everybody put up of Facebook. So, I've got it set so I don't want my image automatically tagged. Yeah, they they kind of have to ask me to tag my image, and then it just gives me a Facebook message, and I can say yes, this is me, this is me, this is me. It it recognized a picture of me like wearing sunglasses and like like even to my eye, I could barely like if I were hmm. just casually glancing at the picture, I probably wouldn't have noticed myself in that picture. Yeah. Yet Facebook picked me out and identified that as me. Now yeah. now. I'll be honest with you, there, there's the possibility that for some of these photos, my family has gone in and, like, tagged me, and it's asking me if this... But there have been pictures put up that I know are not tagged, and Facebook is asking me, is this you? Is this you? Mm-hmm. Is this you? And I, it's incredible. Yeah. It's absolutely <laughs> well, incredible that it... China's on top of that. I mean, they got... All their cameras are all hooked up, and they got facial recognition... Like with the uh, was it the Hong Kong protesters were wearing little laser pointers taped to glasses so that if they looked at cameras it would fuck up the cameras. 
Yeah. And fuck up the facial recognition because China's pretty much 1984 at this point. They're just yeah. it's a police state. But but yes, okay, you got that one. So how about this? And this is shouldn't be too difficult. There's a theory about a conspiracy about between hot dogs, as in hot dog manufacturers. Oh. Oh, dude. Say hi to Jeremy. Hello, Jeremy. Oh, we got a special guest. <laughs> we're uh, we're wrapping up. We got uh, we're finishing our last. Oh yeah. Yeah. Jeremy's sort of. gonna stand it. Yeah, sort of. Ah. Can can you hear? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? He can't hear you. And if I turn, frankly, if I took that out and it would echo. Remember the. Uh, All right. Yes, he can see. He's holding a beer that it's uh, Triforce. It's a oh, Zelda, nice. Zelda-themed brew. Is it dangerous to go without it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it's got a little 8-bit guy. It's the Triforce IPA. <laughs> nice. And it says, uh, it's dangerous to go alone. Take this. Ah, see, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry. Okay, well, between hot dog makers and what other industry is there a conspiracy? Between hot, hot dog makers? And what other product, I should say. Okay, I'm going to defer this to Jeremy. Between hot dog makers and what other industry is there a conspiracy? I know that I know the answer. Mm. There's there's two products that go hand in hand when you're out having a barbecue. Nope. I'm going to say the hot dog rolls. Bun makers. There you go. There you go. Eight pack of hot dogs, a 12 pack of rolls. Exactly. You you guys going to have more, so you got to buy more hot dogs. But then you run out of buns, so you got to buy more. Yep. Conspiracy. <laughs> they did it on purpose. Yep. They hand in hand. They can't live without each other. Shit, I'm batting two for two. All right. Women's makeup. What's the conspiracy about women's makeup? What's the conspiracy about women's makeup? Mm. Well, I know uh, women that wear makeup at work. No, that's the. Uh... <laughs> Do they? <laughs> no, there's a uh, there's a uh, who's the conservative podcast guy that everybody hates? Not Ben Shapiro, but the other one. Rush Limbaugh. No, no, no. He's not that conservative. He's more of a libertarian. But anyway, he does this really good bit, and then he follows it up with women that wear makeup to work. They're just doing it to turn guys on. I don't know. It's like you, you get him all the way to the point where you're like, yeah, I'm with this guy. And then all of a sudden he's like, yeah, women that wear skirts want to get banged. It's like <laughs> the only reason they wear skirts and makeup is because they want to get ahead in the company. Yeah. It's like, oh, you probably shouldn't have said that. So close. <laughs> Uh, okay, so the conspiracy about women's makeup. It is basically that women's makeup damages their skin. So if they don't wear makeup, they look worse than they would have. Oh, so, so they just gotta keep wearing, wearing makeup, makeup hurts their skin, and then they like, have to wear more makeup yeah. because their skin is shit. Okay. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> That's right. We do have a guy that we call. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say friend? Well, friend, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Let's play. Let's, uh, there's a guy. We'll just yeah. say that. Um. Jar Jar Binks. What's the conspiracy about him? Oh, that he Jar 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 Binks is uh, the Dark Lord of the Sith. Nope. Specifically, he was supposed to be Count Dooku's character. I had never heard that one before. Uh, like not like I'd heard he was the Dark Lord manipulating everything. Nope. This one is that specifically he was meant to be where Count Dooku was until George Lucas chickened out. Well, well so he was always under Sidious. Okay. I, I hadn't heard that. That um, I've gained a new appreciation. For Count Dooku actually politically made a lot of sense, and <laughs> since, the Sith, since you gotta that, get you gotta get a T-shirt that says "The Sith Were Right." The Sith Were Right, yeah. Yeah, you gotta get that. Thanos did nothing wrong. Yeah, just put them <laughs> side by side. Yeah, split split screen. Okay, okay, I suppose I missed that one. This one is um, 
this one's near and dear to your heart. Why did Disney make the movie Frozen? Why did Disney make the movie Frozen? And it's a conspiracy? A conspiracy. Um, you know, I haven't heard this, but now I'm going to have to speculate. Yeah, yeah, because they love money. <laughs> no, that can't be it. <laughs> uh, uh, because they wanted a female to rescue a female. It was kind of a feminism... Think much more sinister. More sinister than more, feminism? Yeah, more sinister. Holy feminism. crap! Because <laughs> um, they hate snowmen. What else besides Disney, the movie Frozen, is often talked about being Frozen? Fish sticks? Yes! <laughs> Disney and the goddamn fish sticks. They can never get enough. <laughs> I give up. What? It's <laughs> The conspiracy theory is... That they made the movie just so that if you Google Disney Frozen, you'd come up with the movie and not Walt Disney's Frozen Body. Oh, <laughs> I love that theory. The theory is going to tell Jeremy. Yeah. The theory is, is that when they made the movie Frozen, so when you Googled Disney Frozen, it the number one Google search oh, is not, not the fruit. Yeah, not Walt Disney's head. <laughs> I like it. And that's it. That's the only reason they made the movie. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And they did make a shit ton of money. <laughs> Why did they make new Coke? Why did they make new Coke? Because cocaine was illegal. That's Jeremy's answer. Bunch of party yeah. poopers. What you're talking about, there's a lot of <laughs> like, like the specifically in the mid '80s, they came out with new Coke. Yes, I remember and then, it. And people and then they brought it back the street. Right, and then they Coke came classic. Up, came back with Coke Classic. Oh, I imagine it was to make people mad, so they would demand Coke Classic, and as soon as they remade Coke Classic, they'd make money hand over fist. That's the sane answer. The theory, the conspiracy <laughs> theory is <laughs> that there was they used the opportunity to change from real sugar to corn syrup in the Coke Classic. Oh, they, it was a smokescreen. We're going to do this new Coke. People are going to hate it, whatever. We'll, and then we'll bring back Coke Classic. They'll be so happy they won't notice that we went to corn syrup instead of real sugar. That they went real sugar and they used the outrage of new Coke to, to hide the fact that they were going back to regular Coke and people would be so happy that they wouldn't notice that there was corn syrup instead of real sugar. It's all about uh, the corn syrup. Real sugar. Yes. And same with Pepsi. Yeah. Pepsi with sugar. Yep. Corn syrup. Because corn syrup's the devil. Corn syrup makes the world go around. I don't know. It tastes good to me. That's all I care about. <laughs> and then the one that's near and dear to my heart. What was it? What's the conspiracy theory about Mo Sislak? Do you know who Mo Sislak is? Mo Sislak. Mm -hmm. so Mo Sislak. What's the conspiracy theory surrounding Mo Sislak? That is we... Mo the bartender. Oh, Mo the bartender from The Simpsons. Oh. Specifically, the prank phone calls he would get. There's a conspiracy theory about that. There's a conspiracy theory about the prank phone calls that Mo the bartender. I don't know the answer to this. I'm not that Basically, Simpsons savvy. It is more of a fan theory than a conspiracy theory, I guess, but um, that he knew exactly who was prank calling him, and he just put on an act because he loved to hear Bart and Lisa laugh. Oh, but, okay. And so it's the, bullshit. The it's theory bullshit. is that Mo knew that it was Bart every time he called, but he liked to make uh, Lisa and Bart laugh, so he played along. And it's bullshit, and I'm going to tell you this. That is some <laughs> sappy motherfucking crap <laughs> from after season nine. Where they turned Mo into the sad sack, like, oh, woe is me, I'm so depressed guy. Up until then, Mo was the one of the best characters. He's this misanthropic, like, evil, twisted, criminal. Always looking at the noose. Yeah, no, no. The noose stuff was way later. That the, 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 How was the, it? The depressed Mo, the sad sack Mo, the, the, the oh, my life sucks, I'm so sad all oh, the time. Okay. That's later. 
the best Mo is the criminal, angry, I'm going to shoot you in the face with a shotgun Mo. I'm going to steal pandas and whales. I'm going to run speakeasies. Going on a Mo rant. God damn it. As, as soon as you see him like that, that's Steve talking about The Simpsons. <laughs> oh, besides what I said at the very beginning, my top sitcoms, my top sitcoms did not include The Simpsons because The Simpsons is not a sitcom. The Simpsons, at least from seasons three through eight, is a transcendent higher state. It's a uh, highbrow. It's like a dimension above. It's just better than everything. It's, you can't categorize it, and it spits in the face of anybody that tries to categorize it. Okay, I'm done. That's and the it. Theme, the theme song's done by Danny Elfman. And the, and the theme song's done by Danny Elfman. Bring it back. Yep. Bring it all back. Yes. They, they did a lot of predicting the future, too. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. yep. <laughs> and that just shows the genius of it. Like I said, higher dimension. They came back in time from, like, heaven or something. <laughs> I'm not sure that's how it works, but... yeah. All right, you all set? That's it for me. All right, well, I'll sign off then. Who are you? I am, uh, I'm Tom, Spinal Tap Big Bottom, with a (laughs) thing, dip me in your mighty Ah, I'm Bob, uh, Slide Whistle, (laughs) Scully, saying Oak Nuggets, baby. All right, right, uh, I will uh, catch you on the flip side. All right, flip flop. Bye. Yeah.